0: Pineapple Pizza podcast discusses the histories, cultures, and beliefs of regions around
1: the world. These stories often contain mature and sometimes disturbing content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast, where we serve up slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. It's an interesting combination of flavors. Weird, but it works. I'm your hostess, Emily, and today I'm serving up another snack time treat from our friend Jules at the Riddle Me That Podcast. Riddle Me That is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by true crime and mystery enthusiast Jules. She takes deep dives into the facts of unsolved cases, disappearances, and mysteries. New episodes are available every Sunday. If you love all things mysterious, you are going to love Riddle Me That. If you're craving a little something to tide you over until your next slice of pineapple pizza, then chow down on today's snack time special. Riddle Me That shares with us the mysterious tale of the missing Sodder children with our very own Lindsay as a guest host. On Christmas Eve of 1945, George and Jenny Sodder and their nine children went to sleep to dream of the coming day's festivities the night would be plagued by strange occurrences. An unnerving phone call. A loud bang on the roof. An unlocked door. Cut phone lines. And a fire that would ravage the home. In the chaos, five children went missing. What happened to them? Had they perished in the fire? Or was the fire simply a ruse to cover up a kidnapping? Stay tuned for Riddle Me That. And remember... Accept nothing, question everything. Welcome back to the show.
2: I'm Jules, and this is Riddle Me That True Crime. So, I'm excited today to introduce you to my lovely co host, Lindsay from Ye Old Crime Podcast. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Hi, Jules. Thank you so much for having me. So, Lindsay, do you want to tell my listeners a little bit about what got you into podcasting and what to expect from Ye Old Crime Podcast? Sure. So I came up with the idea to start a history podcast
0: about true crime in like 2019. And it's an idea that I've been playing around with for a while, but it never seemed to have the time to actually start. And once 2020 hit, I was furloughed about mid-March and I thought to myself, you know, this is the time when I should do it since I have the time now. So I convinced my sister Madison, who's my co-host, to join me and it kind of just flowed from there so on my show we cover a variety of cases it all take place pre-1900 so we cover things like the practice of putting animals on trial and poisoners and cannibals and witchcraft and asylums and things like that so it's kind of a variety a mixed bag of cases that took place pre-1900 um so basically, if there's something in history that had some sort of criminal aspect to it, we're probably going to talk about it on our show.
2: Yeah, I really suggest you all go out and subscribe because it's actually a really good show. And it's quite funny, too. And there's something about when cases are kind of and the stories are sort of so far removed and so far back in time. Like you and Madison have some fun with it. And it's really enjoyable to listen to.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I I definitely get what you mean about being more removed from it because I feel like you don't feel as bad making fun of things because no one's around to like get offended
2: so yeah there's you know nobody around anymore who's tied to it so you feel like you're And at the end of the day it's like you're never making fun of victims but you're making fun of the absurdity that surrounds so many of the crimes and oftentimes the perpetrators. So, I'll make that part clear. But there's plenty to laugh at in a lot of these stories that don't involve the actual murder or don't involve mm-hmm. actual death. So, mm-hmm.
0: just gonna say, yeah, for sure. We don't make fun of any of the victims of anything. It's just a lot of the criminals are hilariously
2: inept at what they do. So, <laughs> facts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So I need to know, like, what was the first true crime case that kind of stuck with you when you were younger that you just couldn't shake? So sticking with the history theme, uh,
0: the case of Lizzie Borden was the one that really kind of struck me growing up. Um, And I'm sure everyone's really familiar with the case. But in case you're not, it's um, a woman who was famously accused of killing her parents with an axe, but she somehow got away with it. But even though she did, the stigma kind of followed her the rest of her life. And it's just one of those cases that it's just fascinating to me because it was never truly quote unquote solved. And for whatever reason, it just kind of really gripped my imagination.
2: Yeah, I think it really is one of those cases. It explains a lot why this was the first one that gripped you for sure. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For one. But secondly, I think it also is one of those ones where it really challenged kind of the status quo and the misogynistic kind of. Culture at the time where women were the inferior race, they were delicate. This idea that Lizzie could have, you know, hacked her stepmother and father to death was too much, I think, for the male brains at the time to take.
0: Yeah, it was very much like there's no way that this delicate woman, who by all accounts was beautiful, um, there's no way this delicate woman would have that kind of anger and malice towards her father and her stepmother to. Murder them in such a brutal fashion. Oh, because so. pretty
2: people who are rich don't kill people. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> All right. So let me give you a brief synopsis of the case we're going to cover today. Just so you all know, this is an oldie. And that's the reason I chose Lindsay to jump on board and co-host. So the year was 1945. The location was Fayetteville, West Virginia. It happened on Christmas Eve. The night was chilly and silent as most children and parents had gone to bed waiting for Santa Claus to visit them in the night. This family was no different. So at the home, there were nine children and two parents. A loud bang on the roof would be heard at 12.30 a.m. Christmas morning. Then sometime after, a fire broke out, engulfing the home by 1.45 a.m. The parents escaped the raging inferno, and four of the nine children were rescued from the blaze. The fire department was slow to respond, and the family helplessly watched as their house burned with their five children inside or so they thought. Upon later inspection, there was no trace of the missing five children. No bone fragments were found. This led many to believe that they were never burned in the fire and were instead kidnapped. This is a story of the missing slaughter children. Are you familiar with this case, Lindsay?
0: I am. And this is actually another one of those cases that just sort of like grips your imagination and really makes you kind of question everything. And it's It has been a while since I've heard the full details of the case. So I'm really excited to dive into this one with you.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to have you because it's so far back and it is like it's a wild ride. And at the end of the day, I really don't know what happened, but the details are just mind boggling. They are. They really are. All right, so let's go back to the beginning. So, George Sauter was Italian from Sardinia. He'd immigrated from Italy when he was 13 through Ellis Island during what was to be a huge wave of immigration into America. George arrived on American shores and was determined to build a life for himself. Basically, he wanted that American dream. And it was said that he wouldn't discuss why he left Italy. It was also said in sources that an older brother of George's immigrated with him, but would, for one reason or another, choose to return to Italy right away.
0: See, and that's something that to me, me it seems a little strange like why would you go to all the trouble to immigrate and then just choose right away to go back to Italy like I would imagine given the time frame that this took place it would have been very difficult to go back to Italy yeah Um, so so that part of it just immediately I was like why would you go back if you were in essence escaping what was going on at the time. So that's another one of those things where it's like what was the deal with that?
2: Yeah, it struck me as really odd too. It's not like you've got to remember the time. This isn't like a guy just jumped on a plane. He was taking a boat. And these boats, yeah. like how long did they take like months to go from Italy to America?
0: Yeah. And you know, even at that time, like yeah, I could I can't even imagine how difficult it would be to get back through customs, to like, right. go to a different country, even if it's the country that you came from, like, it just seems like a lot of unnecessary work. But at the same time, I mean, like, I, we don't know what happened, but it just that part of of it, when I first, you know, heard that I was like, wow, why? <laughs>
2: What's the story there? Like, did you like boat life so much? Like you were basically <laughs> on a boat for like two months probably. And you just loved it so much. You like wave your brother goodbye once he hits the shores in America at Ellis Island. You're like, deuces. I'm going back to Italy another two months on the boat.
0: <laughs> I just love the ocean. The ocean air is
2: really good for me.
0: <laughs> Maybe he should have been a sailor. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe he was like, you know, I'm just going to give this uh, boat life a, a,
2: a whirl and see how I feel. <laughs> Yeah, we, we solved that mystery. There you go. We solved it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so George quickly found employment working on the railroads. It was said to be difficult work. Like it was obviously really backbreaking, difficult labor. Like this wasn't easy. George was carrying water and supplies to other workers. He would then go on to secure employment as a truck driver. George would eventually go on to start his own business hauling coal. He was said to have had two trucks in what was to be a successful business endeavor. I mean, it kind of looks like George has the mix of determination and grit. Like, it's seriously not easy to come to America with the clothes on your back and truly make it. And it looks kind of like that's exactly what George Sauter did. And see, it's, it's one of the
0: traits that I've always admired about people who come to this country. Like, they work so hard because they know that American dream is possible if they put in the time and the effort and that like never give up attitude is something that I feel so many people in like our generation, it's kind of like worked its way out. Like people don't really, they lack that drive and to put forth all that hard work that they can't see at the end of the tunnel. Like if I do all this stuff, someday this will happen. And that's really admirable that people like George Could do this and be able to have these success stories, especially given the prejudices that he must have faced at this time in history.
2: Yeah, that's exactly what sticks out to me is the fact that he was Italian, which, you know, to some of you listening might mean nothing. And, you know, if you don't know the history, there was an incredible amount of like racism towards people who were Italian. There was a lot of othering. So you've Mm -hmm. got you know, there was with like Irish people at the time, too. I mean, of course, it's to a lesser degree than, you know, what black people and Hispanic people face in America, but it, it's still its own thing. And there was a lot of racism and othering to do with Italians. So the fact that he was able to claw his way up to the top and find some kind of measure of success really speaks to, like you said, his fortitude and his drive.
0: Yeah. I mean it's extremely impressive to to go from hauling water for people and things like that to owning your own business. I mean that's that's really inspiring and that kind of I think speaks a lot to his character too that he was willing to put in that much work to go for what he wanted.
2: So George met Jenny Cipriani sometime while living in America. So she was a stonekeeper's daughter. The couple fell in love and George married Jenny. They moved into a middle-class neighborhood in Fayetteville, West Virginia. The neighborhood was said to house many Italian immigrant families. Jenny's daughter was also an Italian immigrant who moved to America when she was a child, along with her family. So in 1923, Jenny and George would have their first child, John. The couple would go on to have nine more. During this time, George was building up his business and seeing great success in the coal business. The family lived in a two-story timber home that was reported to be roughly two miles from the center of Fayetteville. I mean, nine children. Can you seriously even imagine? See, and I have two kids that I can
0: barely handle. Like, the, the thought of adding seven more to that is just insane to me. And, uh, you know, again, this goes back to, like, kudos to them for putting in what probably would have been tons of time and effort to be able to just take care of their children, you know, but I can't, I can't fathom having nine kids under the roof, under one roof.
2: I'd probably go insane. (laughs) I think that's just, it's so many. I mean, my husband and I get overwhelmed with the dog sometimes trying to get what we need to get done. Like yesterday, he went to like doggy daycare, which he goes basically for the socialization and it gives us a break. So he doesn't have to go out to go pee 10 times during the day and- He gets to play with other dogs, which in Malaysia, socialization with other dogs is a little more difficult. So, you know, we do that, but it gives us peace of mind. We're like, oh, whoa, there's so much freedom. Imagine if we actually had like a real kid, right? Yeah. (laughs) Kudos to you mothers out there.
0: Well, and not only that, but like, this is a time before TV and electronics and gadgets and stuff. Like, how do you entertain nine children? Oh, good point. You know, you can't just plop them in front of a tablet and be like, Okay, have fun. Not that I do that. But you know what I mean? Like, you know, you actually have to talk to them. You have to talk to them or encourage them (laughs) to play games with one another or something or yeah, I can't
2: I can't imagine. Yeah, I guess Jenny would have had to have been pretty creative finding things to do. I mean, hopefully they liked school and, you know, what do kids do? I guess build blanket forts and put on plays. I don't know, play with train sets. Yeah. And
0: yeah, I think reading would have been a big thing. Trying to think what would have been big games that they would have played at the time. I suppose playing with like jacks and um, they might have had like little army men and things like that or I have no idea. You'd probably play a lot of like baseball and stuff, especially if you were living in a an immigrant type community. Because I know like in a lot of those types of instances, a lot of the families kind of like play together. Like a lot of the kids would hang out and interact with one another in like an, a safe neighborhood type setting. So it's entirely possible they just played outside most of the day with other kids in the neighborhood.
2: That's true. Like when I was a little kid, my dad used to boot me out of bed by if it was the weekend by 8 a.m. And he'd be like, go ride your bike, go play outside. I was very limited with how much TV I was allowed to watch. And I definitely did begrudge him for it at times because I just wanted to sleep in. But yeah, he'd be like, nope, go ride your bike, go outside, get some fresh air, go play with other kids.
0: Yep. And that's how as It was when I was growing up, too. You know, you go outside, you ride your bike, you find some friends in the neighborhood and Get into some mischief and hope that no one gets hurt.
2: And then you go home when the lights come on. Yeah. I think maybe it was even more so like that back then. <laughs> Exactly. So it kind of goes without saying that George had clawed his way up and he would fought really, really hard for his piece of the American pie. So at the time, as we said, it just, it wasn't easy for Italian immigrants. Immigrants did in some places face discrimination and prejudice. Keep in mind that when the story takes place, it is on the heels of the fall of Mussolini. So many Americans viewed all Italians with the same lens. That isn't to say that they didn't view them with that lens prior to this. Let me just make that clear. So it was a great achievement that George was able to accomplish what he did. So like not only did he build a large family and a home and a successful business, he couldn't have done it without Jenny, who was by his side every step of the way. I mean, I'm pretty impressed with this family right from the jump. It seems like they've got a lot of love and seriously, nine kids worth of love.
0: Yeah, and... And I would totally agree. I mean, like, as I said, I feel like this is something where he really worked hard to earn what at the time would have been considered, you know, like middle class status to be able to provide for his large family. And I would also imagine that he probably put himself under a lot of pressure to make sure that it didn't fail, given the, you know, the climate of the time with people having such prejudice against italian americans and you know just wanting to prove like you know i'm just as good as anyone that was born here like my business is just as great as anybody else's so
2: it makes sense having basically like a sports team full of children too because if you if you're building this business you want to hand it off to somebody but you also want the help with the business so what better than to be able to know okay not only do i have help but when i move on i'm passing something meaningful on to my children exactly because that's That's very much something that I know was a a really big deal with
0: um, bigger families at that time, you know, setting up a basis and then being able to pass whatever the business was down to the next generation and the next generation. Like that's a really big thing. So yeah, it makes perfect sense that he would want to make sure that he had a lot of kids who could very easily run the business whenever he decided to retire.
2: So George didn't let prejudices stop him. Like he managed to elevate himself from humble beginnings to find prosperity for his family. So the family was said to be really well respected in the neighborhood, though it was also reported in sources that their opinions were strong, especially on Mussolini, that they were not afraid to share them either. And that's what neighbors love angry political banter oh of course it's the best (laughs) it's it's absolutely the best (laughs) yeah like that's what everybody wants like I'm going to share my political opinions with you you've just got no choice you've got to sit there and listen
0: yep yeah I just picture like standing around opposite sides of the fence and just spouting off about politics (laughs)
2: Yeah. And so obviously this rubbed some people the wrong way. So there were a lot of Mussolini supporters that remained. And it was said that George's opinions were unwelcome by many in the neighborhood. That mattered little to George as he shared his opinions freely and he was unbothered that others didn't agree. This was America and he was entitled to share his opinion. He was protected by free speech. I mean, I can see that, but I can also see how
0: that viewpoint would cause a lot of strife with his neighbors. I mean, as we as we know, a lot it wasn't uncommon for immigrants from countries like Germany and Italy to live close to each other to kind of create that sense of community and normalcy that they would have had in their home country. And so it doesn't surprise me that a lot of the political leanings and things like that had transitioned over from Italy. Like they had all kind of like kept with what they had believed in the old country and that kind of thing had come over with them. And so I definitely could see how his opposition to Mussolini would ruffle a few feathers.
2: Yeah. He's a bit of a contrarian, right? Like, like you said, they are, for the most part coming over and they still are in support of Mussolini. And then you've got this contentious atmosphere. Cause I just picture George Sauter being like shaking his fist, Mussolini. You know, yep. being like it's like almost like talking about politics. You need a level of consent because when you start forcing it down people's throats, it does create a really tense atmosphere.
0: It does. It it gets to the point where it's like people almost want to avoid t- talking to you entirely. Like I just picture like him going outside and the other neighbors are like, oh, there's George. And then they like go back inside the house because they don't want to have to talk about it. You know what I mean? Like,
2: oh, totally. And I feel like people should be able to share their opinions on politics all they want. But in their neighborhood, it almost should require a little bit of consent if you're trying to keep the peace. Because if you've got completely contrary political beliefs, what do you do? Do you do you argue nonstop? Or do you just try to accept that that other person believes something different from you and just shut up and both go about your day and you know you are you really going to change their opinion you know keep I would just think within the neighborhood when it comes to your neighbors probably best to just keep that to yourself
0: yeah it's like the whole like agree to disagree thing like just keep that aspect of your belief structure and that aspect of your relationship on the back burner no one needs to talk about that let's talk about something else
2: So let me use one of your American states as an example to illustrate this point. So let's go down south to Alabama. So I kind of imagine George Sauter's situation being akin to being like the one Trump supporter in Greene County, Alabama, where 85% voted for Biden. Or on the other side, a Biden supporter in a neighborhood in Winston County, Alabama, where 90% voted for Trump. Like opposing political views shared with neighbors, as we just mentioned, just maybe shouldn't be done. I think it's one thing to have your beliefs and to share them with friends and to share them in a wider sense through social media or through protests. But I think, when it comes to like just wanting to hang your hat at home, not having the drama is probably the best scenario.
0: Yeah. And speaking as someone who spent four years in a very red pro-Trump county, I completely understand. Like I would keep my political opinions and Democratic leanings to myself unless one of my neighbors happened to bring it up first. And I knew that they had the same leanings that I did. But otherwise, politics just wasn't something that was ever discussed, period. Um because as we all know, it's, it was a very hot topic uh, issue at the time. And especially when George was around, I mean, it's on, you're coming on the heels of a really awful world war that was still in progress at the time that this was going on. So it's, you know, something that probably should have been kept to oneself.
2: So the couple had 10 children, Sylvia, who was two years old, George Jr., who was 16, John, who was 23, Mary in age 17, and one son, Joe, who was away in the army. So these children were out of harm's way when the fire raged in their Fayetteville home. These are the children who would disappear in the fire. Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louise, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5. Like I can't even imagine what it would be like to lose one child, let alone five. Yeah. And whenever I hear stories like this, it just,
0: it really breaks my heart. Like it reminds me of this one case that took place locally in Minneapolis back in 2015 um, and a fire that broke out that killed three children all under the age of seven. And it was this, you know, poor family that that, that were using their oven as a source of heat because their furnace stopped working and then something caught fire. And the only person who survived was the mother. And I can't even imagine what that sense of loss would feel like. And not only that, but like the survivor's guilt that you would experience as well. And especially in the case of the Sauter family, I mean, they're probably experiencing this tremendous sense of grief and loss, but at the same time, they still have all these other children that they have to be strong and supportive for. I mean, they still have children they have to try and create this pseudo sense of normalcy for, and that would be... almost more difficult to try and bring life back to balance after this horrible event took place.
2: Yeah, I I think you're almost like stuck kind of in this suspended animation from, you know, Christmas of 1945. You're stuck because you don't get a resolution. You never find out exactly what happened. And yes, you've got four children, but you've got five that are missing. How does anybody really and truly move on when they just don't have any answers? Yeah, that's I, I can't even imagine what that would be like. So I think the best way to tell this story is to give a timeline of events. So on October 1945, a traveling salesman would visit the Solder house. His name was Fiorenzio Genitolo. He was allegedly very unhappy at being dismissed during what turned out to be a political conversation with George. Classic George. Surprise.
0: <laughs> Surprise.
2: <laughs> so allegedly the salesman warned George that his house would go up in flames, which is kind of aggressive yeah that's that escalated quickly, <laughs> right? It was also said in sources that he was angry that George wouldn't up his mortgage or something along those lines. It appeared he was kind of more of a mortgage broker or an insurance salesman, like he wasn't selling vacuum cleaners or anything of the like. Like this man was alleged to have even referenced his daughter children. He was alleged to have angrily threatened George, and Biorenzio had said that the children would be destroyed, which again escalated really quickly. Wow. Okay. That's, that's dark. <laughs> that is dark. Why? <laughs> yeah, Like this was postulated to be due to George's anti-Mussolini views. So at some point after this encounter, a visitor to the house remarked that George should get his wiring inspected, saying that the fuse boxes could start a fire one day. I mean, this sounds kind of sketchy, like, whoa, buddy, that's a bit of a weird observation. Yeah,
0: and like, not only that, but like... To me, that sets off a ton of red flags. But like at the same time, unlike George, I've listened to enough and like read enough about true crime to kind of know a motive when I hear one. And it seems pretty clear to me that people in the area, including this, you know, quote unquote, mortgage broker slash insurance salesman that they were definitely trying to use intimidation tactics to try to scare him and his family away from the area potentially. And knowing that I'm sure even if he was like, you know, this isn't okay, you would never have involved the police. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not something that would have been done at that time. Cause I feel like, especially living in an immigrant community, you would have wanted to handle things yourselves first before you involved outsiders.
2: You know what I mean? Exactly. And this was something that took place between two Italian men, George Sauter and Fiorenzio Genitolo. So he probably thought, like, I can handle this on my own. What am I going to call the police for? It's just a bunch of empty threats. But it does seem rather prophetic when he says, your children will be destroyed and your house will go up in flames. And, like, that's literally exactly what happens on- later on. Yeah. So- You're a witch. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So obviously this was a bizarre interaction and George was understandably confused as he had an inspection done and the electrical wiring in the home was fine. So in the weeks leading up to the fire, the solder boys had noticed a strange car watching their younger siblings as they walked home from school. This car was reported to have been seen in multiple locations at different times. Okay. Yeah. And
0: if that was me, like the instant you mentioned my kids, I would have been doing whatever I needed to to protect them. Like call the cops, invest in better protection, whether that means like a baseball bat or whatever, you know, everything. And anytime I hear stories like this where people are targeting kids, it just like puts me at a level of rage that I can't even properly describe as a parent. Like to me, it's just disgusting to bring innocent children into adult matters. You know what I mean? Like, it's just that takes it a level too far for me.
2: Oh, 100%. I agree. And like, I I don't know how you handle that. But I mean, at the time, they're probably like, oh, it's empty threats. I mean, you could like straight up Kevin McAllister that house and just booby trap it, right? Like Home Alone style. But you've got a bunch of kids running around. So one of the kids are more than likely going to be the one that gets injured. So exactly. They didn't have security systems back then. So like you said, a baseball bat would have been that. But whoever's doing this is potentially going to be calculated enough that they're going to do it. Well, the family's vulnerable. And what's the time when someone's vulnerable? When they're sleeping, right? Yep. So on Christmas Eve, 1945, it was reported that nearing bedtime, the children asked Jenny Sautter if they could stay downstairs just a little bit longer. And this makes sense as kids around Christmas are all hyped up on sugar and thoughts of Santa Claus. And I'm sure that the Sautter children were no different. So what was your family tradition on Christmas Eve? So my family, we would
0: open stockings and gifts on christmas eve like during the day and then we would leave out cookies and milk for santa while we went out to look at christmas lights and he would always somehow know when we were gone and he would come and drop off presents for us while we were out looking at christmas lights in the neighborhood and then the day christmas day we would go and spend it with my extended
2: family that sounds so nice i love looking at christmas lights around christmas
0: yeah. And it was just kind of, I mean, we grew up in a really small town. So it was just kind of nice because we would, you know, drive out into the country where some of the people had like the more elaborate lit up displays because there wasn't like street lights and stuff out there. And so it was just kind of fun. We'd be gone for like, you know, 20, 30 minutes just driving around looking at lights. It was kind That's of cool.
2: Fun. That sounds fun. It's like I remember attempting to pull an all nighter, like hoping to catch a glimpse of Santa Claus, but without fail, every time I fall asleep. And then what would I find? An empty plate of cookies and presents under the tree. And the solder children were not as fortunate. They reportedly wanted to stay up late. Perhaps some of the younger children wanted to catch a glimpse of Santa coming down the chimney. Perhaps Rudolph was on the roof and that was a draw for the young children. It's difficult to say for sure, but it's easy to speculate. Yeah, like what do you do with your kids? So my kids will set out milk and cookies for Santa, but then we'll also put out
0: um, a plate or a bowl full of carrots for the reindeer. Cute. And they always tend to get up at like, Four in the morning to find the milk and cookies gone and most of the carrots eaten and also getting exactly what they asked for underneath their stockings on the fireplace.
2: That sounds so nice. Honestly, that sounds so cute. <laughs> who gets who has to eat all the carrots, like a big bowl of carrots? You're like, oh, everyone's got a sore stomach till the next day from eating so many carrots. <laughs> well, it's funny
0: because I, I live in a very wooded area. So mm-hmm. what I, I typically end up doing is I'll like grab a handful of them and like chuck them in the backyard for the deer that we have oh smart and then my dog also loves eating carrots so that I'll let her out one last time before we go to bed and after the children are asleep and she'll just like eat a bunch of carrots and then come
2: back inside oh my gosh Winston loves carrots too he loves sweet potatoes carrots all the orange stuff yep yeah she loves a good carrot So Christmas is obviously an exciting time for children, and it can be difficult to go to sleep at a regularly scheduled time. So Jenny relented. She said, yes, the children were permitted to stay up later than usual. But Jenny had one condition. The children had to turn out the lights when they were ready to go to bed. The doors had to be locked and the curtains had to be closed. This is pretty basic stuff. And I mean, I'm sure Jenny checked the doors and curtains before she went upstairs to bed. I speculate that if the children were looking out the window hoping to see Santa Claus on his sleigh, then this reason would perhaps have the children leaving their curtains open. Jenny wanted to make sure that if the kids were peeking through the curtains, that they closed them when they went to sleep. So... She obviously didn't want any strangers peering into their home while they lay asleep in their beds. Like, this is safety 101. Jenny Sauter was smart, and she just wasn't taking any chances. I mean,
0: given the threats that they've been getting, I would have been doing the exact same thing. I mean, even right now, we tend to keep the curtains drawn and the lights out whenever possible. Because there's honestly nothing creepier than the feeling that you're being watched and not being able to see who's outside. And just knowing that you've taken every precaution to lock up the house and like keep the world at bay is a small comfort, especially in times when you don't have like alarm systems and things like that, security systems.
2: Yeah, it is a really terrifying feeling like that you're being watched. And especially like you said, like you're out somewhere where it's, you know, kind of rural, right? So mm-hmm. that feeling of being watched, it could be an animal in your yard, it could be whatever, but you almost can feel those eyes on you. So it is really creepy. And you want to make sure everything's secured because there's nothing worse than feeling like eyes are staring at you through a window at night when you can't see what's out there. Yeah. No, thanks. No, thank you. Hard pass. Hard pass. So around midnight, early Christmas morning, Jenny answers the phone. So it's strange to be receiving calls this late at the solder home. She picks up the receiver and it's a man. He asks for a man's name. So Jenny's obviously confused because she doesn't know who this man is. It must be a wrong number, she thinks to herself, as she informs the caller that the man he's asking for, he doesn't live there. So before Jenny can hang up the phone, she hears what sounds like a party in the background. And like, this makes total sense to me as it is Christmas Eve going into Christmas Day. Jenny hears a woman laughing in the background and what appears to be people clinking glasses or plates. So the woman's laugh was unsettling to Jenny for some reason. The man then hangs up and Jenny is left confused by this exchange. So it is possible that the woman was sounding slightly off kilter and strange due to like one too many eggnogs. It's really difficult to say. But regardless, this phone conversation would stand out as a red flag in the minds of the Sodders in the years to follow
0: and I've always found this part of the story to be really creepy. Like there's just so much about it that can be read into like a variety of ways. Like did they call the distractor? Was it a legit wrong number? Were they just calling to gloat in some sick sort of way because they knew it was going to happen? There's just so many what ifs about this particular aspect of the story that you could literally just spend hours just trying to figure this one part of it out.
2: And it could be completely benign or it could be malicious. Like you could interpret it in both ways. It could just be like this is a legit wrong number it is christmas eve going into christmas day people are up late partying clinking glasses would these people be celebrating before they actually did the crime i don't know exactly that part it just To me, I kind of lean slightly more towards it's benign and that it's just being interpreted as this malicious, nefarious type thing after the fact, given the context. But I I can't say for sure anything is possible with this case. It could have been, you know, somebody calling to taunt them or to see what they were doing or see who's up. Yeah. Or it could have been something as simple as, hey,
0: I'm trying to reach so-and-so because he needs to come pick up his wife or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? And it's it just after the fact, like, In hindsight, it just
2: sets off some weird vibes. Yeah, it definitely does. So around the same time, it's speculated that Jenny got out of bed to check on the children. So she went downstairs and noticed that the lights were still on. So she checked the front door and it was unlocked. Jenny thought this was very strange, obviously, and the curtains were open as well. It was as if the kids just hadn't listened to her at all. And this was a major departure from the norm, as these kids were really good listeners and usually followed her instructions to the letter. So Jenny glanced at the couch and she saw one of her children asleep. It was 17-year-old Marion. Jenny had to have felt a wave of relief at this point. Yeah,
0: so I could see it as being maybe the kids were just so excited that they just ran upstairs and didn't even think about it. Like maybe Marion had fell asleep first and they were just like, oh, we should probably go to sleep too and just ran upstairs. Who knows? You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. And I have to think like, Marion is likely the more responsible one, given that she's, you know, almost 18 and she's the girl. So she'd be like second mother to these kids. And the fact that she fell asleep, maybe she wasn't able to double check that the kids did these things. And they just ran up to bed and went, Marion's going to do it when she wakes up. So we're not going to worry about it. So I would assume Jenny would walk down and go, well, Marion's there. Like nothing could have happened. They probably just went to bed and she fell asleep. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So it would be logical, obviously, to then assume the rest of children were safe in bed. And this is the part that we may never know for sure. We will never know if at this point the children were in their beds or if they'd been kidnapped and whisked away to parts unknown. It's possible that it happened quickly and quietly, that Marion simply slept through it. Or perhaps she was in another room and the children were taken quickly. Maybe Marion would have assumed that they went to bed. Well, and it's like you say, like
0: was this a crime of opportunity? Like if they'd been up and kept the lights on and they were already potentially being monitored from the cars that were following them around and in the neighborhood, is it possible that people were waiting outside for when they fell asleep? I mean, again, the idea that people would be so malicious as to break into someone's home on Christmas Eve to take their children out of some sort of grudge because they have different political views than you is just, it just doesn't make a lot of sense.
2: It really doesn't I mean I guess if you're gonna pick a day there's two sides of it families are very together and often like very united around Christmas so on one hand it's a really kind of bad time to try to kidnap children but on the other hand it is a day where parents might go to sleep and kids might stay up later or they might sneak up so I don't really know one way or the other but either way it does seem strange Marion's asleep on the couch like what did, are we to believe that like these kids didn't make any sound and somehow these kidnappers snatch five children from under her nose without her noticing exactly that's that's the thing that just doesn't just doesn't add up for me yeah me neither so Marion just Obviously, laid down on the couch and fell asleep. Of course, this is kind of speculation. But the only thing we know for sure is the lights were on. The door was unlocked. Miriam was asleep in the couch and the other kids were not present. So at this time, Jenny secured the house. She locked the door, closed the curtains and turned off the lights. She went back to bed with her husband, George, and her daughter, Sylvia, who was two years old at the time. Jenny tried her hardest to go back to sleep, but she was rudely awakened to a loud noise. Something heavy hits the roof and rolls down. So this night just kept getting stranger and stranger. The loud noise was later hypothesized to be a napalm-like substance. There was something resembling this found in what remained after the fire. So some sources saying young Sylvia found it months later when playing in the snow, though accounts do differ on this.
0: See, and it's at this point that I'd be up and wandering around the house to check on everything. But at the same time, I can't point a finger of blame on Jenny because, you know, she was tired. She assumed her children had listened to her and just gone to bed because for all she knew, Marion, like I said, was the last one to fall asleep. And the rest of the kids had just forgotten to take care of stuff because they were running upstairs in a mad dash to try to like fall asleep before Santa came
2: girl's tired she's got nine kids I don't blame her she thinks Marion's got this she's 17 I would imagine she would be very responsible right like their oldest their oldest son is 23 I think he might be the one that's away I can't really remember he might be the one that's away in the military and then I think the next age is 16 so that makes Marion the oldest and she's a girl therefore I think she probably was likely acting like that second mother to these kids for sure. Like I can totally see
0: her being, you know, the second mother and I'm sure Jenny relied on her a lot to keep the younger kids in, in you know, well in hand. So yeah, I'm sure she was just like, you know, Marion probably had this. There's nothing to worry about. I'm just
2: gonna go to bed. Yeah, and whatever it was that hit the roof, it seemed to be kind of some sort of incendiary device because the house was quickly engulfed in flames. George and Jenny Sauter made it out of the house. They had young Sylvia, age two, George Junior, age 16, John 23, and Marion, age 17, following closely behind them. Okay, so the John who's 23 and the oldest of all of them, he was already in bed, but still he's a boy at 23. I still don't think he's gonna take on quite the parental role that a 17-year-old girl would. It's just something at the time where it was much more a female kind of designation, right?
0: Yeah. Well, and given like the age of the the younger kids, I can't see a 23-year-old guy wanting to hang out with a bunch of his like younger siblings like that. You know what I mean? No. Like that just definitely seemed like something that he would have left to his younger sister. Like, you got this, Marion. I'm I'm going to bed.
2: (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) So the family stood on the front lawn, helpless. They watched, they waited, they screamed, and they yelled. The family expected to see the other children at the windows, like peeking through and asking for help. It, It was reported that the missing children slept in the attic. George and Jenny assumed their screams would have roused them, that it only seemed logical that they would appear in the windows screaming for help. But this never happened. And it does seem illogical that not even one of the five children would even make it to a window to yell for help. But still, like the family waited. The fire raged on and they saw no evidence of life in the house. Only flames remained. And this is something where it just
0: kind of strikes me as odd because you would think that they sleeping in the attic, that they would have heard that loud bang as it hit the roof. right? And that they would have been the ones that would have woken up first if they weren't already still awake. So you would think they would have been the first ones coming downstairs if they were up there. So to me, it's, it's just like either one, they already weren't there or two, carbon monoxide, like that they, if the fire started on the roof, the smoke would have hit the attic first because that was the start of the fire. So it's, it's hard to say, but yeah, I mean, you would assume that if they hadn't run out first, that they would have run to the windows and been asking for help.
2: I just would think that at that point you would hear the thing hit the roof first. If you're in the attic, like the kids would have heard that. And if they did hear that, would they not have you know, gone to their parents and been like, something hit the roof. Wouldn't at least one of them have got up and probably run to their parents' room and said, what was that? Something hit the roof and it was loud. Because if it woke up Jenny Sauter, you know, I'm pretty sure it would have woken up those kids, right? Well, not only that, but it's Christmas
0: Eve. They probably would have thought it was Santa. So wouldn't they have gotten up and run to their parents
2: and been like, Santa's on the roof and been like freaking out about it? That's what I would have done as a kid. And I find it bizarre that not even one of them did that, which we then have to question were they even present when this happened? Maybe the kids were already gone and the fire was just meant to be misdirection. Exactly. There's just so many questions in this. It's like I go back and I know. forth so much. I know. So Marion, being the responsible young lady, she had attempted to call the fire department. So for some reason, the solder house phone wasn't working. This was a curious fact, given that the phone was working at midnight. So the fire was speculated in sources to have started sometime after the loud bang on the roof. So at one forty-five a.m., everyone in the house knows that the house is on fire and is in a panic to leave. Yeah. That's it,
0: seems like such a short window for the phone to all of a sudden stop working.
2: Yeah, we'll get to why it's not working. And it's just bizarre, too. And like trying to line this all up with coincidences, it's just really hard for me to swallow. Any scenario in this case is just so difficult because you almost have to suspend logic in order to go with any of the theories. Exactly. So, Why was the phone working minutes prior to when the fire was thought to have started? Did the phone call have something to do with the events that would later transpire? Like, we'll later find out who's responsible for the phone line being cut. Like, yes, it was cut. So what remains is if this individual who cut the phone line is connected to the fire and or the disappearance of the children, or will his involvement turn out to be a coincidence or a red herring? Put a pin in it because we'll get into it in more depth later on. Putting a pin in it. (laughs) So Marion then went next door to a neighbor's house to attempt to call for help. Like, again, she had difficulties. This time, the operator could not be reached, and this must have been so frustrating for Marion. It was the worst thing imaginable happening to her family. She was screaming into the void for help, and nobody's there to hear her. Marion must have been losing her mind by this point. A person who was driving by agrees to go to a local pub and make the call from there. So in all of the many attempts to contact law enforcement, it's unclear who was the one to get a hold of the fire department. Sources say the call that eventually went through was from the town center. But I
0: find this part so weird, too. Yeah. Well, and again, it's like if a fire is going on in your neighborhood, you are going to notice that and you are going to wake up, especially if people are screaming outside. So why would no one have called?
2: Wouldn't someone have called? You know what I mean? Oh, I think you're right. It's just, could this, the operator couldn't be reached when Jenny was trying to get through. And so maybe they had a bunch of different calls and maybe one operator, not like a switchboard. And so potentially there were multiple people trying to call and just nobody could get through. I'm not really sure the details, but it does seem so strange.
0: Yeah, it's like, I just, I can't fathom the idea of there only being like one operator working on Christmas Eve. I mean, granted the potential for, horrible crimes like this to happen on Christmas Eve, I would think are pretty slim. But at the same time, it's like, you know, who knows? And the fact that no one that that we are aware of came out to offer assistance in any way, like
2: it just it just all seems so bizarre to me. Yeah, it's definitely really weird. So one thing was for sure, it appeared that the phone at the slaughter's house was definitely cut. Why did this happen? Like, was someone planning to take the children and they didn't want the parents to call for help? Did they set the fire to cover their tracks? Like, in any event, we don't know why the man cut the phone line. We only know that it was severed, thereby stopping communications. And the solders couldn't call for help at that critical time. Yeah, it's just, it all seems
0: too so coincidental. And I know that can't always be the case given this story, but yeah, it really, really boggles the mind.
2: It does, and more things start to add up, and it starts to look like maybe it's not a coincidence. So it's been posited in sources that the thief wanted to cut the electricity, or perhaps the electricity and the phone lines, but only managed to cut the phone. So there was a pile of presents under the tree as there were nine children at home for Christmas. It would have been potentially a really good haul. It does seem rather bold that a thief would strike on Christmas Eve. Again, this reminds me of Home Alone. (laughs) Yeah. So what are the chances that on the day of the fire that there was also a thief, totally unconnected, prowling. Something was stolen, but it was a block and tackle. And it wasn't stolen from inside the home. It was stolen from the outside. See, and to me,
0: it seems too calculated of a thing to be a mere coincidence. Like it would make sense to cut the electricity as well, but what would have been their trigger to cut the the line like was it when jenny is turning off the lights like there were so many moving parts to the story that it's hard to believe that how the events unfolded would have been planned out to the extent to which they all ended up taking place you know what i mean like it just seems like there's too many moving pieces to where it would have all actually been someone's master plan to have things unfold the way that they did
2: Yeah. And like, why would any thief cut phone lines or like, even if he was mistaken and he meant to cut the power, like, why would he need to do that if he was only, if he only intended to steal an item that was sitting outside? Like, what was his interest in the inside of the solder home? Like, what is the likelihood that the fire and the cutting of the phone lines are two separate and unrelated incidents? It seems really difficult to believe that these two events could be separate. Like, it's just too great of a coincidence, in my opinion. Exactly. So sometime after 1.45 a.m., when the six family members escape, George decides he simply cannot watch the house burn. He has to attempt to rescue the children. He goes to the rear of the house to fetch his ladder. George runs, and he stares at the location where the ladder was supposed to be. And it was missing. Like, I can't imagine how George must have felt. Just that feeling when your gut drops, and panic just basically envelops you.
0: Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where it's like... Was it something where he had moved it prior to this, but just because of how you're Your body is dealing with all this adrenaline and things like that. Is it something where he forgot that he had moved it somewhere else and it was actually in the garage or something? It's one of those things where it's your mind and your body does really strange things when you're in such a high stress situation like that. So it it is entirely possible that it was supposed to be on the, the rear of the house where he thought it was. And it's also entirely possible that he had moved it somewhere else and completely forgotten in his panic that... It wasn't at the be- at the rear of the house anymore, and that's just one of those things that it's like: is it possible that he had moved it? And he just, in that panic and that moment of, I have to get my kids, that he just sort of blanked on the fact that it wasn't there anymore.
2: I mean, it's totally possible, right? Like you've got somebody who's going I know where this is and sometimes I'll move things where I'll be like where did I put the kitchen scissors I'm sure that I left them in the kitchen and I'm looking everywhere and I'm like "Ah, oh, guess I didn't I guess I took them out right we don't always yep. register those things like it's not like it's a super important emotional memory that we're gonna like make sure that we file away in the proper place we don't always remember where we put our keys that's another thing you know what I mean so maybe he mm-hmm. did put the ladder elsewhere Yeah. In any event, like George is obviously in a panic and he then runs back to his family and he decides to attempt to scale the burning house. But Clearly, this is an impossible feat and he's unable to achieve his objective, but still the windows remain empty. There are no tiny palms pressed up against the windows and there are no tortured screams. There's no sound of children. So in the cold early hours of Christmas morning, the sound of the fire burning is all that could be heard. Inside the house, there was an eerie silence. And where were the children? Yeah, that's just... I can't imagine. And the family screamed at the top of their lungs, trying to wake the five children, and they got no response. So George racked his brain, like how was he going to get to his kids? And then a light bulb went off. He would use one of his giant dump trucks and get his kids to safety. He could simply drive the truck up to the house, and then the kids would have something to jump onto. So George and his sons then went to retrieve the trucks. The trucks, as it appeared, wouldn't start. It was cold that night in Fayetteville, and... The trucks had been working several hours earlier, but this left many to wonder if the men flooded the engines or had the trucks been tampered with, perhaps by the same person who taken the ladder. See,
0: and again, this whole thing is just insane to me because if I heard people screaming outside, I'd be running out to see if I could help. And then on the one hand I have to remind myself that he's not very popular in this neighborhood, so it's like were people purposefully avoiding going out to help.
2: It's weird because I found both things said about the family that the family was really well liked, but people didn't like his opinions about politics. So I'm like, well, what is it? Is he really well liked? Is he this guy that everybody really likes? And they just are like, oh, the one thing about George is his political leanings are like a little too left, you know, for our taste. But we forgive him that. I- I'm not really sure. Yeah, it just seemed
0: again, it just seems so strange to me that no one would have come outside to help.
2: No sources did I read that like the neighbors started flooding out to, you know, join the solder family and see what was happening. I mean, they may have, but it certainly isn't painted that way in the sources. So it does seem a little bit strange because they had to have been screaming and people had to have noticed a raging inferno burning their neighbor's house to the ground. Exactly. So it was reported at the time that Christmas Eve and Christmas Day 1945, that the weather was freezing cold. All outside sources of water were frozen over. So that's really something to consider when, you know, kind of asking yourself if the trucks were tampered with. Because it's possible, but it also seems just as likely that it was too cold to start. Yeah, especially if, you know, being dump trucks, it would have been
0: outside. Like, it sometimes is just really hard to get an engine to turn over when it's that cold. Like, it's just... It's just not going to happen.
2: Yeah, I'm just like less likely to believe that this that these trucks were tampered with. I think it's more likely that somebody, you know, may have done the other things, but the trucks were just a happy accident. Like, oh, it's freezing and, you know, everything is frozen. So, yeah, the engine might not turn over and it's easily going to get flooded at this point, right? Yep. So, like, as far as the fire department's arrival, like, this had to be one of the slowest roundups, like, I've ever heard of in any case. So in their defense, it was reported in sources that many of the members were volunteers. Some said all of them were volunteers. So it was Christmas morning by this point. They were most likely at home, asleep with their families. So the town operator had to call each of the firemen at their respective dwellings. Like this must have taken a great deal of time because the fire department didn't arrive for hours. It took the home 45 minutes to burn to the ground. It was nothing but a pile of rubble and embers. When the firemen arrived, they searched the scene for the children's remains and they found nothing, no bone fragments, nothing. This is highly unusual in a fire. There's usually remains of a body found. And this is especially true of a fire that only burns for 45 minutes. There should have been something remaining of the children.
0: Yeah, I'm having a hard time believing that this was just a matter of people being slow to get to the area. I mean, even if it was cold, I would imagine that any fire vehicles would have been kept indoors like they are today. And even if people were at home with their families and their volunteers, it's still their responsibility to answer the call.
2: And it just it all just seems a bit too coincidental. I know, but if you're like a volunteer fireman, you're like, I'm volunteering. Like I'm working for free and it's (laughs) Christmas and I'm going to spend some time with my family. And like these guys who are, you know, volunteering to do it for free, they likely have other jobs. And so answering their phone at like 2 a.m. or something on, you know, Christmas morning, they're probably going to be like, oh, just like let it ring, whatever. Let somebody else deal with it. And I get that it is their responsibility, but I think all the regular firemen were basically been away at war and a lot of them hadn't returned. So these were the B team for sure.
0: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, they it's entirely possible that they could have been, you know, having a gay old time drinking and things like that on Christmas Eve. So I'm sure some of them could have been extremely hungover or, you know, what I mean, any number of things.
2: Yeah. And it's not like they can just text them or page them or whatever. Like, who knows how many of these guys actually have phones, where their phones are situated or located in their homes. So Mm -hmm. maybe if you've had, you know, knocked back a few, you know, at Christmas Eve dinner, or, you know, you had been drinking that night. Yeah. You might not hear your phone ring. So it does make sense to me that it might've taken them hours. I mean, I'm a little shocked that a couple of them didn't arrive within an hour, but yeah, it's, it is a bizarre thing. Well, and if
0: we go back to what happened at the beginning, you know, if it took the operator that long to be to get in touch with the operator and there was, and it took them that long to get in touch with the fire, the firemen, like that right there is a whole bunch of time that was wasted. Just trying to get in touch in contact with the person who needed to get in contact with the firemen. So you've already lost a bunch of time.
2: Yeah, you're right. And the firemen, Once they got there, they investigated. So they quickly decided upon the conclusion of faulty wiring or an electrical fire. And this was really odd as the neighbors had reported lights being on in the solder home while the fire burned. This wouldn't have happened in an electrical fire. It would have gone black in the solder home if the electricity had shorted out. Like I find this conclusion to be really strange, given the fact that we know George Sodder recently had the electrical check. And with the neighbors' eyewitness accounts, like this explanation just isn't lining up for me. Yeah, I don't buy it. So the coroner arrived on the scene and decided that the children had indeed perished in the fire, speculating that they had simply turned to ash. He believed that this accounted for the lack of bone fragments. The fire, as it seems, burned for far too little time, also at far too low of a temperature to account for cremation. Okay, so crematoriums typically take at least two to two and a half hours to cremate a body. Even then there's bone fragments left in the ashes. And like, I didn't realize that it took that long. Like this isn't a quick process. This is nearly three hours. And even then bits of bone remains. I have urns with two of my dogs who passed away and their ashes are in the urns. And I peeked inside to make sure they were really there. And the vet didn't just like tape up urns of sand and there were definitely bone fragments inside.
0: Yeah. I mean, I too have cremated my dog and there's, there's bone fragments. I mean, and again, that was a professional job. Like you said, it, there's, there would have been a body. There would have been bodies. It just wouldn't, there's no way it would have gotten hot enough to cremate five children.
2: Yeah, so the temperature of a house fire is estimated to be around 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So, of course, this specific fire can only be estimated, but by all accounts, it's less hot than the temperatures a body would be cremated at, which is around 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. So this fire burned for only 45 minutes, and we can presume at a much lower temperature than would turn bones to ash, and also for a much shorter amount of time. There should have been something left behind, as Lindsay just said, like, right? There should have been at least one of the children all... All of the five of them would not have turned to ash.
0: Yeah. And it's like, even, even depending on how large the children were, it still takes extreme temperatures to cremate somebody. And regardless of how long you do it, there are fragments. So, say, say they did burn up in the fire, there would have been like bones. There would have been bones found. There wouldn't have been like little small chips here and there. There would have been like whole sections of bones, and if like, not an entire skeleton.
2: And we're also, we're also saying and like assuming. Under like the presupposition that this investigation was really thorough or that they knew what to look for. There could have been just this huge amount of ineptitude that they might not have known what to look for. Like these were volunteer firefighters. I don't know how many dead bodies or burned bodies that they'd actually seen. Maybe they just didn't know how to investigate for this. And it could be an explanation. But I still have a hard time believing that somebody wouldn't have walked through and seen something from one of the bodies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if there if there were bodies in that wreckage, you would have known, you would have been able to recognize it. Like bones are pretty easy to spot amidst, you know, melted appliances and, you know, burnt couches and things like that. I would I would think part of a human skeleton would stand out a lot more than your average run of the mill wreckage.
2: Agreed. So it was said that the firemen were, as mentioned before, mostly volunteers like many of the firemen. Like I said, they were away at war. It was 1945. Remember? And World War II started September 1st, 1939, and it officially ended September 2nd, 1945. So Christmas Eve was several months later, but you have to remember, it wasn't as if it was the end of the war, and that meant that every single man was put on a plane that very day and sent home. Like, this process took months, and in some cases, even years. There were messes to be cleaned up and rebuilding that needed to take place.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like, for as far as, as, far as we know, like, none of the actual firemen that had been working previously prior to the war, they probably weren't even back on U.S. soil yet. They were probably still overseas cleaning up stuff.
2: Okay, this is a really stupid question. You know, this time period, like 45, was there... I know there was airplanes, obviously, but was there commercial airplanes at this point, like large commercial airplanes? Um, I
0: think if they would have been in the military, they would have still come over on military transport. I don't think there were... I don't think there were commercial airplanes at this point in time. I think it was just the military grade ones.
2: Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too, but I was a little unsure about the aviation history here, so...
0: Yeah, I don't think there was commercial airlines
2: at that point in time. So as far as we know from what is available in sources, the fire department wasn't functioning at full capacity at this point. So it's up for debate how thorough the walkthrough of the property was. Like, were these volunteer firemen, like we just said, were they were they really capable of finding bone fragments? Did they even know what to look for? Were they trained in examining a house fire with fatalities? You know, the answer is, unfortunately, they probably were not. I mean, again, unless we look into the very history of house fires, you know, in Fayetteville at the time during this exact time period. And again, I don't even know what the record keeping was like at this time. So I doubt we'll find accurate information. I still have a hard time believing that these volunteer firefighters are searching scenes for dead bodies. But like you said, human bones should stick out. You got a femur or something. You've got a hip bone. These are some large bones. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be turning completely to ash. Like I get, like, if you get a finger bone, a phalange, like that might turn to ash, but a femur, I don't, I'm not buying it. Not in 45 minutes. Well, and you
0: would think that as soon as they got on the scene and they heard that there were five children missing and potentially lost in the fire that as soon as they heard that there were potential fatalities that they would have immediately called the police and some sort of medical personnel to show up like some sort of ambulance or something, um, even if they were volunteer firefighters, because I guarantee you they probably did not have any sort of like medical training as volunteer firefighters to kind of know what necessarily to look for when they were searching through the rubble. Cause I'm sure they're not expecting to find a bunch of dead bodies when they go to a fire. But again, you would think that at the very least, as soon as they heard, Oh, there are five children missing and potentially lost in this house fire, that they would have been like, okay, we need to, we need to call an ambulance or something.
2: Yeah, you're right. Once they knew that five children were missing, they should have done a very thorough search. Like even if they aren't aren't used to finding, you know, dead bodies, you know, after fatalities, after a fire, I would think that they would do an exhaustive search of this property looking for any trace to give these parents closure. Because yeah, they might just be volunteer firefighters, but I mean, yeah, they might not be trained in looking for this specific thing. But I can imagine if the bodies were there, it would have been that difficult to spot a piece of one of the children.
0: Yeah, and it's like, you know, As a general human being, if you found out that there were children missing in this house fire, you'd be tearing the place apart to try to find them, you know, with the assumption that if if there's any sort of potential that one of them survived, you'd be going through that wreckage like crazy trying to find these kids.
2: Yeah, I agree. And so this is really interesting. So a bus driver was said to have reported witnessing what he described as fireballs being thrown at the roof of the solder home. So this was not long before flames engulfed the home. After the fire had blazed its path of destruction, only a few items remained intact. Appliances were damaged, but they weren't ruined. One of those curious items that remained was a round green object. When it was found, kind of differs between sources, with some sources saying Sylvia discovered it months later and others saying it was found on site during the investigation. I'm not really sure which source is correct here. That's so random. I'm curious to know what that little
0: green thing actually looked like.
2: Yeah, I like picture it in my head as like that, you know, like pineapple looking thing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I could be totally wrong. Some sources say it was a form of like a napalm-like bomb. So at least that's what George Slaughter believed it to be. Like, is this... The likely object that was thrown onto the solder roof at 12.30 a.m. making a loud thud? Was this the same fireball that the bus driver saw? It certainly would account for the fast-burning fire that would engulf the house, like burning it to the ground in less than an hour, right? So if that's
0: true, and I'm not discrediting the bus driver whatsoever, it would have been interesting to know from what direction the item was thrown. like Because that would have had at least given investigators some clue as to where in the neighborhood they should be looking like it just seems so bizarre that an entire neighborhood would just be radio silent during this like no one else would have seen anything
2: yeah it's so weird we know that neighbors saw that the lights were on while the fire burned the house to the ground because we've got testimony of that but as far as any other neighbor's involvement like i really am completely unaware
0: yeah it just it just seems weird that he would have been like oh i saw this fireball but it's like well what direction did it come from you know I'm assuming it didn't just like fall straight out of the sky and hit the house. Like, I'm assuming it had to have been thrown from somewhere. So it would have been interesting to know, like, was it thrown from behind the house? Was it thrown from next door? You know, just to kind of give investigators some indication of where... They should be in, like, looking as far as a suspect and things like that.
2: And, like, we don't know his full testimony. So it's possible that he might have told investigators this, and that information has just either been lost to time or it's not available. And I, but I do find it interesting because it does seem to coincide with the thud and then the fire. So if this account is accurate, it is very compelling that somebody did this to their house on purpose because we know that the electrical fire is pretty. Pretty poor explanation because witnesses, including the Sodders and their neighbors, say that the lights were on. So it wasn't the case of an electrical fire. Last I heard, uh, electrical fires didn't like throw
0: fireballs at the houses that they're part of.
2: Maybe it was ball lightning. Maybe. Maybe. So in a very creepy and strange aside, a liver was found at the fire site by fire chief F.J. Morris. On another aside, don't you love those like old timey names where it's not like, you know, it's like F.J. Morris. Like, it's really funny. So it was later determined to be a cow's liver and not of a human variety. So- This was later said to have been put there by one of the investigators in order to bring the family closure. And like, okay, so when I say F.J. Morris found it, it's more like he rediscovered it after he himself put it there. So at least that's what most sources report. It was reportedly well-intentioned, but clearly tone deaf and poorly executed. That's not even touching on the ethics. Yeah, like
0: when I heard that, it's just, it's just gross and that type of misconduct Honestly, should have cost this man his job. Like, that's just, it's just sick. Like, no person in their right mind is like, you know what? I'm going to give this family closure. I'm going to go buy a cow's liver and I'm going to put it at the scene of this horrible crime where they lost five children, and this will make them feel better. But he gets even better.
2: It's even better than that. So F.J. Morris allegedly confessed to his priest and other people caught wind because supposedly this priest liked to gossip, I guess. So in any event, George Sauter or private investigator C.C. Tinsley, depending on the source, eventually heard about this rumor and was, of course, angry. So this is when the liver is found and dug up by F.J. Morris, and it's brought to a funeral home. And the mortician said that This was the liver of a cow and certainly not the liver of a human being like that had to be a relief since the liver was in a dynamite box. There would be no explanation for how a human liver would end up in a box, not unless someone placed it there. Like when I researched this part, I was like, excuse me, a cow's liver in a dynamite box.
0: This whole thing just boggles my mind. Like, who would think, oh, yeah, putting a cow liver in a box is way better than glossing over the fact that we can't find five of this family's children. But, you know, for closure, we're going to put a fake liver in a box because that should make them feel better.
2: Yeah. Like hashtag cow's liver foreclosure. Like what? God. Like who does that? That I, was foreclosure. I have no idea. It was just like, this guy had a weird dream and he's like, I know what I'm going to do. This is going to help. Like it, no, this did not help. It did not help FJ Morris. No. So, in another unfortunate turn of events, in the shadow of his grief, George Slaughter decided to do something constructive. A week after the fire, he would go on to bulldoze the area, removing a reported five feet of dirt. It was then said in sources that he wanted to make a garden to honor his missing children. Unfortunately, this removed potentially crucial evidence, thereby making it nearly impossible to ever determine if there was indeed bone fragments present. So, it's worth it to note that in the wake of George Slaughter's death in 1969, Jenny Slaughter would live another 20 years, perishing in 1989, she would often spend a great amount of time at this garden right up until her passing. And she obviously found great solace there. So there is that. Yeah, it's just so sad.
0: And again, this is during a time when people just didn't know as much about like crime scene investigations and a proper protocol, um, especially with like volunteer firefighters going in there. So how would George have known that what he was doing in this attempt to kind of like move on and do something to help his wife and his family kind of process their grief. Like, there's no way he would have known that what he was doing could have potentially caused so much damage in the investigation.
2: Yeah, and like, it gets even stranger. And this part's just bananas. Okay, so years later, Bones would be found on the property and it gets exceedingly bizarre. And I guess on par with the cow's liver bizarre. So the bones were not touched by fire and determined to be from a man aged 16 to 22 years old. So that ruled out all the missing solder children as the eldest boy was 14. So it was believed the bones were buried there long before the fire and were subsequently unearthed when George Sautter decided to dig. Remember, he removed five feet of soil from his garden. I mean what are the chances that he's going to find remains from a teenage to, to a boy in early adulthood right like just seems so weird all i can say is
0: these these guys just have like the most bizarre luck that i have ever heard of it's <laughs>
2: It literally boggles the mind. (laughs) It does. And so it was unclear if these bones were on the land initially or if the soil that had been brought in for the garden contained these bones. But in any event, these bones had never been burned by fire. They were determined not to be the bones of any of the missing solder children. Let me just say that again. So I guess that that's a positive thing. But these bones just leave more questions than answers, such as whose bones were these?
0: Yeah. And it's like, and you probably don't know but it's like it would have been interesting to know if they ever did any sort of analysis like later on to see if they could figure out whose bones they were or if like anyone had gone missing that was that fit that description you know like just so random
2: it really is this family does have the strangest strangest luck So George Sauter would go on to dispute the claims that the fire had been due to faulty wiring. So he believed there was no way that the blaze was electric. George believed it had something to do with the item that made the loud bang on the roof, that it was started with an incendiary device of some sort. So Jenny would support her husband in his beliefs, standing by his side and refusing to accept the narrative put forth by the fire department. And I mean, I don't think George's instincts were wrong here. I'd be thinking the exact same thing.
0: Yeah, I would too. I mean, I think his logic is really sound. Like, there's, by all accounts, there's no way, any, and even with witness testimony, there's no way that an electrical fire would have started that.
2: Yeah, and like George knew it wasn't an electrical fire. He knew this because he had just had his home inspected. His home passed inspection with flying colors. And it was the easy conclusion to jump to that it was an electrical fire. But in this case, it definitely does seem questionable, especially given the fact that not only the solders gave witness statements to the effect that the lights had been on as the house burned to the ground. The neighbors gave similar statements. It wasn't a dark house that was engulfed in flames. There were lights on. And this lends little credence to the faulty wire. Theory. Exactly. So it's definitely worth it to note that many speculated the Italian mafia had something to do with the fire and disappearances of the solder children. So this was speculated due to George Sodder's business in coal removal. It was alleged that it was under the control of the mafia. And that's, of course, an interesting twist. But you have to wonder if there is some wealthy Italian stereotype at play here. It just
0: seems like anytime something, you know, a little wonky happens to an Italian, That obviously has to do with the mob like it just seems like such a flimsy and weird thing to blame this tragedy on but okay I'll, I'll bite why why did they think that it was the mafia.
2: So it was said that George sourced his coal nearby and this led to the conclusion that he was tangled up with the mafia. So the theory going one step further saying the mafia were somehow to blame. Some said it was an extortion plot and it was speculated that the mafia was extorting George and he refused to pay. So it was then hypothesized that the mafia took the children in a further attempt at extortion. Though it is curious that if this was the mafia, that they didn't attempt to collect a ransom on the children. Like, If that is the case, what did they do with the children and what was the purpose for taking them? I mean, seriously, if this was an extortion plot, then why didn't they ask for any money? Yeah, you typically ask for money before you run off with someone's kids. (laughs) And I've never
0: heard of trying to kill the same person you're trying to extort money from by starting their house on fire while they're still in it. I just, I don't understand what that accomplishes. So just going to throw that out there.
2: Yeah. And it just didn't seem to add up. Taking five children sounds like a huge amount of punishment for someone not paying. Like I'd be more inclined to think that kidnapping one child would suffice, but five, it sounds excessive and complex. Like if that was indeed the motive, I also keep coming back to the fact that there was zero money was demanded after the children disappeared. Yeah. And it's like, how are they supposed to contact them? Like their house had burned to the ground. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Their phone lines were cut and it, I mean, it takes time to rebuild a house. Like, were they supposed to mail them a ransom letter? Like, it just, it does not make any sense to me.
2: And how do you expect someone to be in a financial position to be paying you a ransom if you burn down their house?
0: Exactly. Oh, here, you can take my dump trucks. Like, (laughs) like what?
2: (laughs) What? What? That just doesn't make any sense. It does not track. No. So I see nothing concrete to back up the assertions that George was tangled up with the mafia. I initially thought it was a weak connection, though I have been forced to kind of like re-examine my initial impression. Like I did so after reading beliefs of the actual Sauter family members who thought that this was possible. It's not entirely implausible as many of the locals and as mentioned, some of the family believe this may be true. And like, I cannot say for certain, it's certainly possible, but I just don't know how likely it is. And it just seems like if
0: they really believe that, that there'd be more proof to back up those claims, like more shakedown attempts before they just jump to full-blown kidnapping and attempted murder.
2: Agree. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There should be more of a history that we should know something else. You would think somebody would have said something to someone if there was a bunch of shakedowns. Maybe Jenny would have mentioned it to a neighbor or a friend or somebody. It it just seems that we would have some kind of trail. And we've got like that weird traveling salesman guy, but like that Fiorenzo Genitolo or Fiorenzo Genitolo. But we don't really have any history of actually knowing he was tangled up with the mafia. And like we just said, the logic doesn't really seem to track, you know, like taking five kids. That's so complex. You're, you're asking somebody for money, but then, or you want kids for ransom, but then you don't ask for money and then you want money, but then you burn their house to the ground. So they have no resources. None of it lines up.
0: Yeah. It just seems like a really, um, like it escalates very quickly, as I <laughs> mentioned before, with, uh, the yeah. salesman, like to go from, nothing to, now I have your kids and you need to give me money, but I'm not going to ask for money and also I'm going to burn your house down.
2: Like, <laughs> Yeah, it's like a rapid escalation with all these different possibilities in this story. And so both George and Jenny's Sauter believed that arson was to blame. The question then became why? Like, why burn down the Sauters' home? Like, what would be the motivation? And theories started to roll in about the children. That the fire was merely meant to cover up a kidnapping. It was speculated that George's anti-Mussolini stance hadn't been looked upon too kindly by other italian immigrants supposedly he'd shared his opinions too loudly and with the wrong person but too loudly and with the wrong person and you steal five kids yeah again what what did the kids have to do with it that also escalated quickly
0: yeah exactly oh man he's he's too loud about his anti Mussolini things we just better take half his kids
2: yeah, no kidding. Like it's just, it's so extra. I, I would understand maybe taking one kid, but it's really complex to kidnap multiples. But five? That's a lot. Yeah. So, in the following years, tips flooded in. So, George sees a photo of a young girl in New York in a newspaper, and he believes it could have been his daughter, Betty. So, George goes to New York to investigate. He was unable to get access to the young child. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised. The parents were apprehensive. Like, I presume the family didn't want some strange man who was insisting that their child belonged to him anywhere close to their daughter. It seems that George was shut down in New York, and he again went home to Fayetteville empty handed. He was unable to to confirm or deny if the young girl was indeed Betty. And this had to be extremely disheartening for him. But I mean, I do kind of get it. Like, I'm sure you wouldn't let some yeah. strange man have access to your kids. Exactly. And, uh, but on the other
0: hand, you know, it was a strange time following the war. A lot of families were broken up and um, working to rebuild. And you hear so many stories of people having to like dump their kids in orphanages and stuff like that because they couldn't provide for them. So, so let's suspend disbelief for a second. So if, if this truly was a case of Betty being adopted, per se, by another family, it'd still be terrifying to have her meet some random person who just shows up claiming to be her father. You know, like, I, I don't know. It's either way, I would not have let some strange man come in and meet my child saying that he was her dad.
2: And what would be worse is if you birth that child and some strange man is coming into the picture, insisting that that child is his. Exactly. Exactly.
0: That's when I'd be like, I am calling the police, sir. You need to uh, leave my property.
2: <laughs> exactly. Like that's the part I'm unsure of if this child was adopted or if he just seen, I'm more inclined to believe he just saw the picture of the young girl in a paper and believed it was his daughter. And if she was the biological child of these two people, no wonder they were like, no, like hard pass. You are staying so far away from our child, strange man. Yeah. And that's just, it just seems so random to be New York of all places. It really does. So in 1949, the Sodders, in an attempt to ascertain exactly what happened on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, they get organized and manage to launch a new fire investigation. They bring in D.C. pathologist Oscar B. Hunter. This is when they discover the human bones, as mentioned earlier. So the bones are deemed to be irrelevant in the case, as previously mentioned. They were also determined, as previously mentioned, not to have been exposed to fire. Also, they're from a young man, aged 16 to 22. And again, the oldest solder boy was 14, So in any event, the case went cold and the bones were excluded as possible evidence. The case was reinvestigated by police in the 1950s, but again, it yielded no results. That's just got to be so heartbreaking to to know that something's not right
0: and to keep trying and then having...
2: Stuff does not pan out. I know, I really feel for this family. And so, the strange call that came into the solder home at midnight on Christmas Eve was investigated. It was determined to be a neighbor dialing a wrong number, though I'm unsure if the solders accepted this explanation. So, the caller had been reported to be a man in some sources and a woman in others. Perhaps there was confusion due to the woman who was alleged to have been laughing strangely in the background. Like, I'm inclined to believe it was some drunk neighbors having a Christmas Eve party after knocking back a few too many. They tried to call a friend. And the man whose name they asked for was that man. So this is only speculation, but it seems likely given the fact that the police ruled it out as evidence. Though I cannot with 100% certainty say that the phone call means nothing. Honestly, it just, in this case, it does just kind of sound like what police were saying that it was.
0: Yeah. And again, I mean, it just seems really coincidental, the timing of everything. But as this case has proven so far, like stranger thing, things
1: have happened. So who's to say?
2: I mean, this isn't like cow liver brings closure. Yeah. It's not that strange. <laughs> so another, str- another strange thing we uncovered <laughs> during the investigation. That is the theft of the block and tackle that I mentioned earlier. So this was done by a thief. And I said, put a pin in it. Well, here we are. So that man was Lonnie Johnson. So Lonnie said that he cut the phone lines on Christmas Eve. Like, okay, so why would he cut the phone lines to steal a block and tackle? Like, it was outside. Lonnie didn't need to enter the home and wasn't about to disturb the family. So why did he cut the phone line? So it was speculated that he intended to cut the electricity. But again, why would he need to cut the lights in order to steal something that was on the outside of the home? It didn't make any sense to me. Does this make any sense to you? This seems like overkill. If you're already stealing something that's
0: outside and have no intention that we're aware of, of actually entering the house to steal more stuff.
2: Yeah, it's so weird. Like, and as far as cutting the phone lines, Lonnie would have needed a ladder to do this. So the phone lines were apparently 14 feet above ground. So where was the ladder? Remember, the ladder was missing at the scene. George Slaughter attempted to locate it and he wanted to use the ladder to attempt to rescue his children. When he went to the side of the house where the ladder was kept, it was missing. It was nowhere to be found. And this is one of the moments in the case that for some reason just sticks out to me. I think it's just trying to get into the feelings of George Sauter who at this point believes his children are burning alive at that moment and that ladder would have represented just like this helpful intervention, hope even and then to find it missing, it just, just gutted hearing that, you know? Yeah, well and to me, the fact that the ladder was missing indicates
0: some form of premeditation but if the children were supposed to be in the attic, as Jenny said they were, does that mean that the potential kidnapper used the ladder to take them, didn't find them there and then took the ladder with them? Or were the children actually there and they were able to get them down the ladder? But again, they took it to prevent anyone from discovering that the children were gone. Was the phone line cut after the children had been taken to prevent the Sodders from calling for help before the fire was even set? Like, There's just no real concrete timeline on when the children disappeared. Like, Did they disappear before the fire even started, you know, like there's just, there's just so many aspects to this that are unknown.
2: I soft lean towards the children disappeared prior to the fire. It's not a hard lean. It's just, you know, maybe like 60, 40, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. And I think that if they did disappear and somebody did take them, that they maybe went through the front door because the front door was unlocked and it was locked when Jenny had gone to bed. So somebody had gone out that front door, somebody had opened that front door and the curtains were also open, which I don't find that strange, but i If, say, somebody's knocking on your door and your curtains are drawn, well, you might open up the curtains to look to see who's knocking at your door. So if Mm -hmm. somebody was knocking, one of the kids looked through the curtains and saw somebody who didn't look menacing, opened the door, and then the children were taken, who knows how. And maybe at this point, Miriam was upstairs, came downstairs, the children were gone, but she just thought they'd gone to bed while she was fetching something. Like, there's just so many possibilities here.
0: Yeah, and again, it's like, if you're going to take kids... It's going to be a lot easier to get them out the front door than to try to get five children down a ladder, you know, outside
2: outside their window. And yeah, it's like, yeah. Getting them down a ladder, you would have to have multiple people involved. You'd have to have one person who's taking them down the ladder then you would Mm -hmm. also have to have another person who stays upstairs with the other children so that they don't call for help, which really ups the risk and the complexity of the situation. Therefore, I think if they were kidnapped, they were most likely taken through the front door.
0: Yeah. And regardless, if they were in the attic and say, Jenny and George's bedroom was below, that would have been a lot of noise. And that would have likely woken her up to be like, Oh, my kids are missing, or someone's something's happening with the kids, you know. So yeah, I think the latter thing is a little bit of a I don't know. It's an interesting thing that the latter just disappeared.
2: Yeah, it might be connected in some way, but it might not be. I I really don't know. So, and also, I don't know, like, what are the chances that this theft of the block and tackle by Lonnie Johnson was a separate incident, like an incident completely unrelated to the fire? What is the likelihood that this family would experience both a fire and a theft that same night? Like, it's likely, in my opinion, that they're potentially connected, soft lean again, 60-40. But- (laughs) seemingly unlikely to be two separate and unrelated occurrences. Like what are the chances that someone would cut the phone lines on a night that the family would need to call for help within like an hour and 15 minutes of this fire? Exactly. And it seems to me that the theft
0: is related and perhaps like Lonnie was even some form of lookout or distraction while the real crime of taking the children was taking place. Because for all we know, he played a hand in ensuring that no one caught on to what was really happening.
2: I think you're exactly right. If that was the case and the children were kidnapped, I don't think Lonnie Johnson did it, but I think he may have been hired by somebody to, you know, steal something in this whole thing of misdirection. So it's like the whole magician thing, like look over here, but over there is where it's actually happening, right? So yep. Yeah, I think that's probably what happened here, too. We know that Jenny Sauter answered a phone call at 1230 a.m. We also know that when Marion Sauter attempted to call for help from the family home around 1.45 a.m. that the phone lines were cut at this point. So the timing here does seem overwhelmingly suspicious. I mean, really, like what is the likelihood that the fire and the theft are two separate and totally unrelated events? Like, I, I just have to believe, like we said, that they are connected in some way.
0: Yeah, I, there's no way that you can look at it and just be like, yeah, it's two totally random things. Like, there's just no way.
2: So another curious thing was that traveling salesman that we mentioned earlier, Fiorenzo Genitolo, who'd had a disagreement with George Sauter in the weeks leading up to the fire. Well, Fiorenzo had apparently increased the amount on George's home mortgage from 1500 to 1750 without the Sauter's knowledge. And this seems super suspect in my opinion. I mean, not to mention super illegal, but, you know. Yeah, that too. <laughs> God. So I'm unsure how this would be possible. It would seem logical that this would require a signature. So it seems that Fiorenzo was similar to, like we said, a kind of a traveling mortgage broker or something like that, or an insurance salesman. It's not really very well defined. So in any event, like this is the same man who it was alleged was very angry when George refused to get more coverage. So he said that there would be a fire and the children would be destroyed just to refresh your memories. So if Mm -hmm. George was refusing more coverage, like we can only speculate that his previous coverage was through Fiorenzo or the company he represented because he raised the coverage. How would you do that if it was through somebody else? Exactly.
0: Well, and it makes you question too, like if it was something where he would then somehow be able to get that cut during the event of an insurance claim without them knowing about
2: it. Yeah, it's super sus. Like he's looking like first, buddy goes and straight up says fire. Your house is going to be destroyed (laughs) in the fire. Your children are going to be destroyed. And he's the one making insurance claims without George Sauter's knowledge. Like he's all the red flags are raising for me right now. Yep. So, I mean, like, this would, I guess, have to be the case and would be really the only explanation to make sense. So, remember that Fiorenzo had enough information to forge documents, increasing the mortgage on the home. So, this was highly suspicious behavior, as we just said. And it isn't listed in sources, but we have to ask, like, What did he do when he increased the mortgage? Did he, as Lindsay suggested, did he pocket the difference? Like perhaps he thought that the Sodders would never find out, say if they were to perish in a fire. But frustratingly, both Fiorenzo Genitolo and Lonnie Johnson were not properly investigated by police. So remember, their initial belief was an electrical fire, believing the children had turned to ash. So this meant that if it was arson or the children were kidnapped, that crucial evidence and eyewitness testimony would be lost to time. Exactly. And so it's like, was this a crime of opportunity? Was this something where
0: Fiorenzo collaborated with some other people who wanted George dead or silenced because of his anti mussolini beliefs or because of his supposed mafia connections? Like you said, because of the lack of proper investigation, there's just no way to know.
2: Yeah, I agree. We'll just never know so many answers to all of these questions because the police never investigated this as a crime from the jump. So the Sauters didn't know where else to turn. It seemed that nobody believed that their children were missing. Their last-ditch effort to get the attention of authorities was to contact the FBI in 1947. The couple received a reply from then-director J. Edgar Hoover. It said, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau, end quote. However, he did say that his agents would be permitted to assist if the local authorities invited them in. I mean, considering what
0: a piece of work he was, the fact that he said his agents could work with local law enforcement was a pretty nice gesture,
2: all things considered. I suppose. So the Fayetteville Police Department and Fire Department declined the assistance of the FBI. Nothing to see here. Yep. Leaving many scratching their heads as to why, like, wouldn't it have been incredibly useful to have the full resources of the FBI investigating the case? Even if authorities were not sold on the kidnapping angle, wouldn't it be worth it just to rule it out? Like, this would seem logical to an outsider looking in, though it seemed that in Fayetteville, the PD just didn't want the outside assistance, which I think we see this a lot in cases.
0: Yeah. And it's to me, it's more likely they didn't want to appear incompetent in their investigative skills should something come up in any sort of FBI investigation, because they kind of knew from the get go that they screwed up. Yeah,
2: I agree. So there are several source, source so there are several sources that report in the years following the letter the FBI did investigate the case as a possible kidnapping so they believed that it did cross state lines so this would put it under the purview of the bureau it appears the investigation went on for 2 years after chasing down many leads that all seemed to amount to nothing the FBI reportedly suspended the investigation after the FBI had suspended their investigation or had declined to become involved due to local pushback this bit of information depends upon the sources Private investigator CC Tinsley, again with the cool names. Right. Right. <laughs> like becomes involved in the case. Tinsley discovered some interesting bits of evidence during his investigation. So are you ready to hear what CC Tinsley discovered? Lay it on me. So he discovered that the traveling salesman, you guessed it, Fiorenzo Genitolo, was part of the coroner's jury in the case. Yes, you heard that right. That same coroner's jury who decided that the fire was accidental. This seemed to be a blatant conflict of interest. This man had threatened the Sauter family children, saying specifically that they would be destroyed and that a fire would burn their home. Now he was in charge of deciding if the fire was indeed accidental. Like, this seems absurd. I seriously can't with this. I just, there
0: are no words to describe What a piece of garbage this guy is.
2: He's the worst. And it seems like a strange twist of fate that the man who should have been one of the prime suspects was now in charge of deciding if the fire was an accident. This leaves the findings of the coroner's jury to be called into question. The validity of their findings is questionable, like especially given the fact that Fiorenzo Genitolo was part of the jury. It's unclear if at the time the Fayetteville police knew about the connection between Fiorenzo and the Sauter family.
0: I mean, either way, whether they knew or not, it's just gross. Like...
2: Do better. Yeah. So let's revisit the strange bit about the cow liver buried
1: in the slaughter yard.
2: Because you didn't have enough earlier. So it was Tinsley who had heard the first murmurs of the fire chief burying an organ in the solder yard, according to some accounts. Those same accounts say it wasn't George Sauter who guilted the fire chief into revealing the location. It was instead Tinsley. There is one bizarre part of the story. Like, yes... More bizarre than Uh burying a cow's liver. And I think I I have mentioned this and it's, it's just, it needs to be hammered home because it's so illogical. I almost get wanting to give closure with an organ, but, What is the most bizarre part is the fact that he buried it in a dynamite box. Like, what was his objective here? There are some cases during fire where organs kind of can appear almost intact as the flesh burns away and then the fire ceases to burn. And this leaves almost an intact organ. It isn't impossible, but like weird. I get it. Not unheard of. But to hear of an organ kind of walking away and situating itself inside of a box (laughs) just really really yeah and it's
0: like and not only that you know it's cow's liver so it's (laughs) like this cow just happened to be wandering around and was like I guess I don't need this anymore oh look a box I'm gonna put it in this box and I'm gonna bury it on the property and no one will know it's there until later and it'll bring them closure because I am the closure cow
2: (laughs) yes cows bring closure The whole thing is absurd. I prep my dog's food. Like I I make it from scratch and, you know, I do it every few weeks and I feed him buffalo livers because they're really plentiful over here and they're a lot nicer looking than the chicken livers. And I'm assuming a buffalo liver is Mm -hmm. similar in size to a cow's liver. It's like the size of a human head. It's huge.
0: Yeah. Like there's no way that you would confuse that with a, a human liver. There's just no way.
2: Uh, No, I just don't think, I mean, even if you think, okay, like I've never seen a liver up close, the size of that thing, there's just no way that's going to fit properly into a human body. I'm pretty sure that that's not going to pass.
0: Especially the human body of someone who's what, between the age of, was it like four and 14 was like the ages of the
2: children? Maybe he was a (laughs) drinker. Like I don't know. I just don't know what, what his thought process was at that point. Yeah. So the part that is completely without merit, I guess one of the parts, and just plain absurd is obviously the box. Like the bringing the cow's liver is absurd in its own right, but why would he bury it in a box? You're not burying a pet, you're burying an organ and hoping that it gets unearthed and somebody is going to legitimately believe that it's part of, you know, The remains of one of the children. So why would F.J. Morris bury a cow's liver at the scene of the fire? I, I don't know. I just don't get it. And how would he assume that it's going to then be dug up? You found nothing when you investigated it. Why are you then going to bury a cow's liver and then you go and tell your priest about it and then your priest goes and tells everybody? Like, I don't get it. Like, again, not
0: only is it just grossly inappropriate in like the most extreme sense of that word or that term, but like, what would have happened if the solders decided to move? And now all of a sudden like some other family comes in and they're like trying to dig up space for a rose bush or something and they're like what
2: is this dynamite box with a liver in it? Like what is this? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's not the type of thing that you want to find on your property when you move in. Like I would think that would be sort of like a bad omen. You find some random liver <laughs> yeah. In a dynamite box like what does this mean? Or, sort of voodoo have I stumbled upon? Right? Exactly. So it was reported in sources that it was like a twisted way of bringing the family closure. It was misguided, FJ Morris will tell you that. That somehow he'd intended it to be discovered. <laughs> and I guess then the family would find peace? I don't know. It wasn't very well thought out. It seems strange. You, It's not like the family, even if they did find it, that they're going to dig that up and be like, oh, this answers all of our questions. Yeah. Everything is answered. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, FJ Morris. This is solved now. Now we can stop looking for the children. Yep. Okay, so it appears that it wasn't merely misplaced hope and speculation that the children may be alive. There were some witness accounts to back this up. So a woman who reportedly lived in the area was driving around at the time of the fire. So she claimed to have seen the children peering out from a passing car while the fire engulfed the solder home. That's very interesting. It is, right? Yeah. So she wasn't the only witness. There was another woman who was apparently operating a cafe. She said that she saw the children in the morning after the fire. The car that they came in had Florida license plates. There was a woman who claimed that Martha was being held in a convent in St. Louis. George followed the tip up, but it seemed to go nowhere. That just, that just
0: seems so random that like, oh, one of your children is in a convent in St. Louis.
2: Yeah. It just seems like, why would you steal a kid to then throw her into a convent? It, It just seems weird. Yeah. And just throw one of them in there. You know what I mean? Like, and like, and she, I'm sorry, she's 17. And at this point, it's probably years later. So she's going to be an adult. Don't you think she'd be like, oh, like, by the way, like, I'm one of the missing solder children. Yeah. I don't want to join your convent. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I'm good. I want to go home. Yeah. So there was another woman, Ida Crutchfield, who claimed to have seen four of the five children at the Charleston Hotel. So she had seen the pictures of the missing children in a newspaper and was familiar with their faces. This sighting was a week after the fire and her encounter with the adults in the group, well, it could definitely be described as out of the ordinary, I guess. So Ida claimed to have seen two women and two men accompanying the children. So it was reported that the entire group, at least eight and possibly nine, stayed in one room, which was said to have had several beds. So the woman at the hotel said she attempted to engage who she believed to be the young solder children.
0: See, this whole thing, I know we've discredited the whole mafia thing, but this seems really mafia-like for some reason to me. Like the whole, like, having a lot of adults, like almost two adults per kid... And they're all having to stay in one room so they can keep an eye on everybody. Like that's just it's kind of creepy. Or
2: it's like Christmas vacation and families are traveling together.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's that, too.
2: That's true. <laughs> So it was at this moment that the men in the group became hostile, so when Ida tried to talk to the children. so it was said that they registered around midnight. The men in the group froze out Ida, refusing to let her talk to the children or engage them any further. And this is kind of difficult to speak on. Like it's possible, like I said, this is a large family traveling and they didn't appreciate a woman talking to their kids. It could have had an innocent explanation, though it's impossible to say either way. But Ida, for her part was certain that these were indeed the solder children.
0: And again, like I said, I find it extremely suspicious that so many adults would be with the children and in only one room. I mean, I would have been just as curious as Ida was too, to be honest. But again, I mean, I have never stayed at the Charleston Hotel, so I am I'm not privy to the size of the rooms and what accommodations would have been like to know whether that was uh, an economical choice on their part. So
2: well, yeah,
0: I, I'm going mean- to suspend disbelief a little bit on that.
2: This is kind of the wake of wartime. So the fact that they could even afford to stay in a hotel and, you know, yeah, there's nine of them. There was several beds. I I don't like to think about what the sleeping arrangements were like. It does sound creepy, but we, again, we don't know what this hotel room looked like. If it was just like one small room or maybe it was more like a suite, it's really tough to say, but it did sound like a bizarre amount of adult humans and children staying in just one room.
0: And well, and the fact that they like checked it at midnight, so it's already kind of late an odd assemblage of people and yeah. she's already kind of like well these look like the at our children you know yeah yeah it just but, seems very very odd
2: yeah i mean i could also see why at like midnight you're super tired from traveling and you've got this like lady at the counter who's like trying to talk up your kids and you're like f off lady like <laughs> no thank you can you just like leave us alone and let us check in it's midnight we just want to go to bed Yeah, I'm
0: tired. Please stop talking to us.
2: Yeah, and like obviously Ida, she thought that this behavior of the group was bizarre. She reports that the adults spoke to each other in Italian. They checked out of the hotel the next morning and there was also reported to be several sightings later in Florida. So this would back up the woman at the cafe who saw a car with Florida plates transport the children, allegedly. It was also said in some sources that Jenny Sauter's sister lived in Florida. It was reported that she had kids that looked very similar to George's and Jenny's. So this could account for some of the Florida sightings, though it's difficult to say for sure. I mean, I can
0: see that, but like were her kids around the same age as Jenny and George's kids to be able to kind of fit with the
2: age ranges? You know what I mean? I think that they were sim- of similar age, and it was thought to be kind of a plausible explanation, but I don't know. I could go one way or the other on that. Yeah. Pretty much like everything in this case. Yeah. Who's to say? <laughs> Who is to say? Anything could happen. In the 1950s, the Sauter family was desperate for answers, obviously. They didn't see any movement in the case, so they decided to take action. They first printed flyers with pictures of their children. There was a reward of $5,000 offered, and it would soon reach 10000 The daughters in the community wanted to know what had become of the missing children. Had they perished in the fire or had they been kidnapped and the fire was meant to cover up the crime? Like at this point, what is sounding more possible? Are you soft leaning with me towards kidnap? Like I'm soft as implausible as it appears at times I do
0: really believe this is a case of kidnapping that was covered up by a fire. Like, to what end the children are being kidnapped, I still don't really know. I don't understand why the mafia would decide to take and displace so many kids. It just seems really risky. And yeah, either way, I definitely feel that Taking the kids was the main motive and then just destroying what was left of any sort of evidence was just kind of like the icing on the cake for whoever did this. So in
2: 1952, the family would put up a billboard at the site of their demolished home in Fayetteville, West Virginia. They would later erect another billboard on US Route 60 near Anstead. The billboard provided the same information as the flyers and it had pictures of all the children in kind of haunting black and white photos. If you haven't seen the billboard, I highly suggest you Google it. There are many pictures available online Lindsay, have you seen the billboard i have and it's just it's just so sad like the
0: kids look like such great kids and like the idea that these are just innocent children that hadn't really hurt anyone and that someone thought it was a good idea to abduct or do something even worse to them is just heartbreaking
2: yeah it really really is so the billboard was said to stand as not only a stark reminder for the mysterious disappearance, but it would eventually go on to be a landmark for those who constantly drove through the area. It stood in this location for a whopping 37 years until 1989. It wasn't until the 1960s that things would seem to heat up in the case of the missing solder children. The solders received a photo in 1968. It was of a man in his 20s. Curiously, the back of the photo had a strange inscription. It said, Lewis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, ill ill boys, A90B2. Both George and Jenny Sauter were floored, believing that it was indeed a photo of their son, Lewis. He had obviously aged some years, but the Sauters knew their children and they wholeheartedly believed the boy in this photo was indeed their son, Lewis. They had to have been filled with hope at this point. Like, there also had to be a sinking feeling, like this feeling of kind of desperation because they had to wonder if the children who were adults now were free. Why had they not contacted their worried family? Were they potentially scared of something? Yeah. And it's this aspect of the
0: story that reminds me a lot of um, the case of Johnny Gosh. Yes. The paper boy who was abducted supposedly into a sex trafficking ring Um who would years later attempt to reach out to his mom to let her know that he was okay. And it's, it's really heartbreaking that there was no way for them to really track the letter. And, you know, thinking along those like lines, like the Johnny Gosh type of thing, perhaps it was, as we have been, you know, waffling about all along, like if the mafia were involved in some way, I'd want to make sure that I couldn't be traced either to protect my family.
2: And like we also like bringing up Johnny Gosh, we haven't even considered that this may be completely unconnected to something that George Sauter has done. And it doesn't mean there was less pedophiles back then. We were just less aware of it. I'm sure that there mm-hmm. was child sex trafficking rings and potentially somebody saw this family and went, oh, wow, score. They've got nine children. Let's see if we can get as many as we can. Like that's going to be lucrative for us. We just don't know. But there obviously is a potential there. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, nothing came of this photo. It was never determined who exactly sent the photo. It appeared that as soon as the trail heated up, it quickly went cold. This time, leaving more questions than answers and further reinforcing the idea that the children were indeed alive and well. Like this had to be heartbreaking for George and for Jenny Sauter. To hold that photo in your hands, like a photo that you believe is your son, Lewis, all grown up and not be able to see him, like not being able to confirm once and for all that this is indeed Lewis. Like my heart breaks for them. Yeah. Well,
0: it's just it almost creates more questions than answers with like the inscription on the back. Like, what does that mean? What does what do the numbers and letters mean? What
2: does ill boys mean? Is that like some sort of I don't know. It's just heartbreaking either way. Another curious tip came into the family in 1967. So this tip came from the Houston area. There'd been a letter that had arrived in the Sauter home and it was from a woman. Interestingly, the woman claimed that Lewis Sauter had revealed his true identity to her. She said that he had a slip of the tongue one night after drinking a few too many. So I don't know what to think of this, but it's definitely curious. Tell me more. So this woman claimed to believe that Lewis and Maurice were both located in Texas. George Slaughter was unable to ever speak directly with the woman. However, the police were said to have tracked down the men. They denied being the missing Slaughter boys, Lewis and Maurice. George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, again with the great name. Right? Right? Like Grover? I love that. So they had a hard time accepting these denials. So these would hang heavily in the minds of the men for the years to come. Like George would unfortunately pass away soon after. And one has to ask, was this the woman who sent the mystery photo of who was alleged to be Lewis? Perhaps the photo didn't get enough traction and she decided to write a letter. Like, it's impossible to say as this is merely speculation.
0: Yeah. And again, it's like, even if these actually were Lewis and Maurice, they didn't have genetic testing then. And if, say, this actually was their their sons and they were just like brainwashed or doing the whole I'm going to protect you thing and not admit that I am in fact your son or it could have also been a thing of well you you spent all this time not looking for me why should I tell you there's there's so many different aspects to it it just keeps getting curiouser and curiouser the whole thing.
2: George Sotter died in 1969 after his death. One of their children, who he'd been away at war when the fire and the disappearance happened. Perhaps he was not as connected to the enduring mystery as a result. And like maybe he just seen enough heartache during war times and was looking for some peace and acceptance. This, of course, is only speculation, but he just kind of wanted to move on. And he was more inclined to just choose to accept the fates of his missing siblings. But nobody else in the family agreed with him. They They wanted to search and they wanted answers.
0: Yeah, I could see this being a coping mechanism. I mean, you said yourself that he'd been at war when it happened. I mean, can you imagine coming home after seeing what you had saw and experiencing what you experienced, only to be told that five of your younger siblings were either missing or dead? I mean, I'm sure part of him felt, again, that sense of survivor's guilt, like, would this have happened if I had been here? Could I have saved them? Could I have done something? And it's entirely possible that in his mind, it was easier to believe, you know, that they had died in the fire than to speculate on what else had happened to them if they'd been taken.
2: Yeah. And like he claimed that the family had basically just done everything that they could in their search for answers. And Jenny Slaughter and the other children refused to accept that the children were gone. They did not agree with their brother. They were not simply going to accept this. The rest of the slaughters, like I said, that they wanted answers. There were five members of their family missing. They had completely fractured. And I mean, I would hate to be told to accept the loss of five family members in mysterious circumstances, too. But everyone's different. So I do understand his wanting to move on and accept that they're gone. Like so everyone can go on living, I suppose. I mean, if only it were that easy.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: So following the death of George Sauter, it was reported in sources that Jenny wore black and was in mourning for the literal rest of her life. She stayed in the family home where they had lived when George passed away. She was said to travel to the site of the Memorial Garden at their former home to tend to it often. So it appears that the site dedicated to her missing five children, Maurice 14, Martha 12, Louis 9, and Jenny 8, and Betty age 5, brought her some peace. It gave her a place to feel close to her children, who were departed from her in one way or another. She would never find out the truth of what happened to her children. Jenny Sauter died in 1989. It was only then that the weather-beaten billboard bearing the faces of the missing Saw children was taken down. The parents died believing that their children were indeed alive, that they were out there somewhere. One of the granddaughters of the children who survived kept the case in the public eye. I can't imagine how strong she must have had to have been to have
0: endured that heartache for so long. And I mean, to die never knowing if your children were alive or, or really gone. Like, how do you grieve How do you properly mourn? I mean, this was a time before we were able to track people down on the Internet. Like, how do you how do you learn to trust anybody ever again after something like that?
2: I don't know. I think it would be so difficult, right? Like I think there would be so much grief and trauma, but you've got literally no resolution. So how do you ever move on from something that you're continually re-traumatized with every day? And that's not knowing if your children are alive or dead. And if they're alive, where are they and why aren't they contacting you? So there's just so many different complex aspects of this. It's just so heartbreaking. And the fact that she wore black for the rest of her life to mourn the death of her husband just makes me so sad. Yeah, that's kind of what
0: um, Queen Victoria did, too, when her husband passed. She wore all black till the day she
2: died. Yeah, it's just really sad. So the slaughtered granddaughter speculated that the photo wasn't just random and neither were the numbers on it. Here we'll get to what you were asking about earlier. So she believed that they could possibly have corresponded to an Italian postal code. So this case has a lot of twists and turns, like just when you think you have a handle on it, something else pops up and makes you question your previous conclusions. So should we, we've kind of gone over them already, but should we get into the theories? Yes. Okay, so theory number one, the children burned up in the fire. This seems like a likely explanation for many. The people investigating the fire were mostly volunteers and there was a fire chief who allegedly decided to bury a cow liver at the scene. Those investigating the suspicious fire can certainly be called into question. That goes without saying. There are some other points that are worth drawing attention to. There were no cries heard. It's impossible that none of the five children could have inhaled carbon monoxide and passed out. Like, it seems unlikely that none of them would have made it to a window to scream for help, especially after the loud bang on the roof. One of them should have ran to their parents' room and not one a child appeared in that window and not a peep was made. And this just seems really suspect to me. Yeah. And especially if everyone else was able to get out. I mean, I'm sure
0: the noise they, that everybody else made as they rushed to leave the house would have been enough to, to wake up the children. I mean, if they hadn't heard the bang in the first place. Like, I would imagine everybody screaming and rushing to get out of the house as it's engulfed in flames would have woken somebody up if they were there.
2: Yeah, I 100% agree. Okay, so let's just revisit the temperatures that it takes to cremate a human body. So temperatures at crematoriums start at 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. They're then raised to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. So the body is then burned for two to two and a half hours. So at this temperature, all that remains of the human body is bone fragments. So in contrast, the solder house fire, we can only speculate, but it's said that house fires typically burn around 1000 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's like almost half right? Of the 1800 mm-hmm. degrees. So the solder home burned for only 45 minutes. So that is 800 degrees less and up to one hour and 45 minutes less than a crematorium. Even then, like there just should have been bone fragments left to the children. And it was reported that the appliances were damaged by the fire, but not ruined. So the fire didn't destroy everything in its path.
0: Yeah, and like I said, I just can't see that being a hot enough fire to completely destroy one, let alone five human bodies and render them to ash. Like, it's just not possible, especially if it wasn't hot enough to do any sort of
2: damage, real lasting damage to any of the appliances. Is it plausible that a fire burning at a temperature far less for a shorter amount of time would even have been able to turn a body to ash? Like, this just seems so doubtful to me. There should have been some remains of the children and lots of them, in my humble opinion. But even with a subpar investigation, I find it unlikely that nothing would have been found. I guess it's not impossible that these individuals investigating had no idea to look for. Like, I cannot rule out that the children died in the fire, though it just doesn't really line up for me and it does seem extremely suspect. I agree. Yeah. So theory number two, the children were kidnapped. So there are two men who could have been responsible in this theory, or at least tied to it in some way. And that's Fiorenzo Genitolo, and Lonnie Johnson. So it seems quite unlikely that Lonnie would choose to rob a block and tackle from the solder home in a separate incident than the fire. Like it seems like it must be connected somehow. Though it is, of course, difficult to say for sure, given the fact that police admittedly didn't investigate either man. Exactly. And then one of them basically was on the coroner's court recommending that they don't investigate it as anything other than an accidental fire. So you've got one of the guys that should have been prime suspect numero uno, and he's not only not investigated, but he's the one who's having a hand in determining if the fire was accidental or not.
0: Yeah, that's that part still just boggles my mind. I
2: don't understand. No. And so if the children were kidnapped, there are all of those eyewitness accounts to back it up. So the woman who saw them in a cafe, the woman who saw them in a car the night of the fire, the woman who saw them at a hotel and the subsequent sightings in Florida. Though the Florida sightings may have been Jenny's sister's children. It's difficult to say for sure. Yeah, that's true. And I don't know. I've got a hard time with eyewitness sightings too. I've got a hard time believing every single one is credible, even though I soft lean towards the fact they were kidnapped. I can't believe that all of these sightings are credible
0: that's very true and it's entirely possible that you know given how widely publicized this would have been that people wouldn't start seeing the sadder children or associating the sadder children with other children assuming that's who they were you know what i mean like sort of misseeing them in places and assuming that that's who they were
2: Yeah, it's not always malicious, but if you're reading about this in the paper, you're seeing these faces, it's very easy to get confused and our brains love to fill in gaps and we we think that our memories and our ability to spot things is far greater than it actually is. Yep. Okay. So again, let me bring up the paper that George Sauter saw this photo in. He believed it was his daughter, Betty. He wasn't allowed access to the child. Then we've got the confusing photo that was believed by the Sauters to have been their son, Louis. So there is the two men in Houston that denied being the Sauter boys, Louis and Maurice. This always haunted George Sauter. Something about it clearly struck a chord. One has to wonder if the woman who wrote the letter about Louis Sauter revealing his true identity in Houston was indeed the same person who sent the picture anonymously. Like we can't say for sure. Sure. We can only speculate on the matter, but it's possible.
0: Yeah, it just seems like if that wasn't the case, then what she was doing was either like as an act of getting attention or possibly even malicious. But what would what would she have to gain by trying to reunite a son with his dad? You know what I mean? It seems like either way, whatever this woman was doing, she was trying to um she believed she was doing something good, I think.
2: I think I agree with you on that because if she was actually trying to get attention, she didn't do a very good job because when they reached out to her wanting to like, you know, try to contact her, they couldn't get a hold of her. She was basically like, she said what she had to say and then she's like, "I, I don't want to be in contact any further. I've told you what I know kind of thing. So if it was to get attention, I feel like she would have done more. So I agree mm-hmm. with you. I think that it's very possible that she did believe whether or not she was correct that this man that she knew was Lewis Sauter. Yeah. So the motivation for this seems to have been potentially. George Sauter's anti-Musoliti rhetoric, or the simple fact that he decided not to up his insurance or mortgage with Fiorenzo. So this theory to me seems like just as likely as the children perishing in the fire, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm still 60% towards somebody kidnapping them, though. I can't really agree on who and what the motive was.
0: Yeah. Again, it just seems like such an extreme to in- involve innocent children into What is basically an adult version of the schoolyard dispute, like the very idea that people would go to such lengths to abduct children and then cause a fire to cover it up, if that is really what happened, is just insane to me.
2: I 100% agree. I think the fact that not only are you involving one child, but five like it's just so much it's just I don't know that's what makes it so bizarre is like just the actual number of children if one of those children went missing I think it would be a lot easier to believe they may have perished in the fire or that somebody would have kidnapped them but we've just got five children missing and either explanation feels unsatisfactory exactly exactly so there has never been any resolution to this case. The Sauter family was forced to move on, never forgetting their five family members who vanished on Christmas Eve, 1945. The Sauter family themselves, as well as residents in Fayettesville, believe that the Sicilian Mafia was potentially trying to extort money from George. Again, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. I want your money, but I'm not going to ask you for any. I'm not going to write a note or demand money. And I'm also going to destroy all of your resources, which you could then sell to give me money. Makes no sense. And I'm going to take care you after your children. Yeah. And like, I guess this is in line with believing that the mafia kidnapped the children with the intention of asking for a ransom or as a punishment for non-payment. The family believed that if the children did survive and grow up to be adults, that they may have avoided contact in their later years in order to keep their family safe. There was also the possibility that the people involved had taken the children to Italy. Like this is difficult, but I think it's a definite possibility. I don't know. I'm. I'm not willing to discount this as a potential explanation, though. I cannot say for sure. And even if they did go to Italy, I can't say it was the mafia. It could have been any one of their neighbors. It could have been that Fiorenzo guy or that Lonnie Johnson guy. It's just so tough to say. I don't know. You are kind of in agreement with me, aren't you, Lindsay? You think that it's most likely they were kidnapped, right?
0: Yeah, I just, I don't believe they perished in the fire, but where they actually ended up, that's anyone's guess. Like... As far as the Italian mafia thing goes, I think it would be extremely difficult to try and smuggle five children out of the country to Italy, especially during a time of war, when I imagine that people would be avoiding traveling to Italy at that time. And, you know, were they separated? And that's why there were rumors that one was at a convent and that the two of the brothers were together and that daughter was in New York. I mean... There's no way to know. But either way, I do believe they were kidnapped. And it's just it's just heartbreaking to think that these poor children had to ultimately pay in some way for the
2: supposed crimes of their dad. Yeah, I agree. No matter kind of how you slice this, like it all sort of sounds absurd. There's really no explanation that leaves you feeling satisfied that every question or every kind of issue and, you know, bizarre element of this case has been addressed. It all, no matter which way you lean, it just, you feel unfulfilled because none of these answers seem 100% plausible. Even though I lean towards kidnapping, I still don't know who did it and what their exact motive would be because Obviously, if it was for ransom, they didn't demand a ransom. So maybe it was something else. Like maybe it was, a you know, organized crime or child sex ring. I have no idea. And like, I hate to even posit that theory because it's the worst. But when we brought up Johnny Gosh, it's like, well, maybe you never know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, regardless of what happened to them. Yeah. It's just it's awful. So I want to thank Lindsay from Yield Crime Podcast for co-hosting this episode with me. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure to be here, <laughs> and I uh, can't
0: thank you enough for letting me go down this rabbit hole with you. It was fun.
2: Absolutely. It was fun. So, Lindsay, can you tell my listeners where to find you on social media? Sure. Uh, you can find
0: us on Twitter at Yield Crime Pod. We're on Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. We're on YouTube if you look for Yield Crime Podcast. Um, trying to think if there are any other... Those are really the three main ones where you can find us. And we're most active on Twitter.
2: Oh, why don't you tell us too about your other
0: podcast, Pineapple Pizza? Oh, yeah. So I also run a podcast with my friend Emily from the Drink Drunk Dead podcast and Ashley from the Studying Scarlet podcast. And it's called Pineapple Pizza Podcast, and it publishes every new episode every Sunday. And we cover myths cryptids and urban legends in different areas around the world so like the first one we covered was japan and we have guests on the last week of every month and it's it's been really fun and i've actually learned a lot about some really interesting aspects of different countries that i just did not know about so it's been a real blast and i really enjoy being able to do it with some of my friends so you should definitely listen
2: Check it out. They've got some funny opinions on Freud. (laughs) (laughs) He's the best. He's he's just amazing. (laughs) We just love Freud. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to review or tell a friend. Both are great ways to spread the word about your favorite podcast. So if you want to support the show, you can also make a one-time PayPal donation to riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Buy Me A Coffee at one word riddlemethatpod. If you want to reach out and say hi or with any comments or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. I'm really active on Twitter, so that's the best place to reach me at podcastriddle. You can also email me at riddlemethatpod at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe and remember, accept nothing, question everything.